doesn't have to be a tantric experience. <laughs> Prepare for embarkation and listen to the Uncut Gems podcast, a weekly show where we talk about movies that no one else wants to talk about. This is episode 149 and my name is Randy. Man, my name is Jakub and you missed the trick on not saying all aboard when you're listening to <laughs> I, I actually looked for quite a while to get some good boat puns and uh, or boat double entendres or something and yeah, I thought about all aboard but... I thought about playing a horn sound, but I couldn't find a good one. A whore sound? Horn. A horn. <laughs> horn sound. A whore sound. That's a wildly different movie. Uh, yeah, I tried to find a foghorn or something, but anyway. <laughs> like from the Batman film. Hey, honey, want to have a good time? <laughs> I'm seven, lady. <laughs> uh, horn. <laughs> All right. Uh so, yeah, that is to say that we are talking today about Let Them All Talk. But before we get into that, um, announcements time. So if you were with us last month, you heard us talk about all of Bob Fosse's films from Sweet Charity straight on through to Star 80. So there was a lot of talk about depravity and dance and workaholism. Uh, go check out those episodes if you didn't catch them. Episodes 146, 147, and 148 uh, over on our Patreon page. For our tie-in during November, uh, we talked about Cabaret, Fosse's probably his most celebrated film, although ar- uh, arguably it is at least. It's the one that got him an Oscar. Um, by the way, you can find our Patreon material at patreon.com slash uncutgemspod. And if you subscribe for just three bucks a month, uh, four fifty Canadian, you can access around 75 episodes of us just talking and rambling and uh, you know what if you sort of groove with that there is a ton of stuff to enjoy and we are constantly adding new stuff three episodes per month at least uh, among all these conversations available we have a full David Lynch marathon episodes on all of his features plus there are episodes on each season of Twin Peaks uh, this month in just a few weeks We will have a full John Cassavetes marathon in there as well. We will be releasing the final episode in that series on Cassavetes' final film, Big Trouble, uh, in a couple weeks. I want to say, yeah, like November, uh, December 29th, I believe, something like that. And that film is Big Trouble, and that series has been amazing. It's been a walk through an era in film history that's been very exciting to talk about. There have been some very personal chats in there. Uh, We've come across what cinema means to us. We've had some very rich conversations, very much worth uh, checking out. Some of those episodes, I would even say, um, served as a bit of therapy, you know, (laughs) and soul searching. They were really, really, really good stuff. Uh, And we even sort of accidentally stumbled across our own uh, mini history and indictment of 1970s film criticism. I want to call it because we had a lot to say about critics of the seventies and eighties uh, during those chats. But anyway, it's Paul and Kale specifically. You know what I'm <laughs> but I there's a beef lot with of this stuff. woman now. Massive beef. <laughs> so 
Anyway. Boeuf, as they say in French. Boeuf. It's the French call Le Boeuf. Le Boeuf. Le Boeuf with Paul and Kale, whom I believe the French would also call Les Incompetents. <laughs> anyway, yeah, I would encourage you know, to check out Cassavetti's filmography and then, you know, from there, check out our conversations as well because they were meaningful to us. Really enjoyed them. So that's a complete Cassavetti set for you right there on our Patreon. Uh, and you know, we're almost finished of our Soderbergh project, which is something that we embarked upon at the beginning of this year. Uh, on Patreon, we've talked about Soderbergh's shallow dives, we call them, his bigger films. Uh, and this month, we're pairing that with, uh, you know, sorry, I said that wrong. On Patreon, we are doing, no, that's right, we're doing, uh, sometimes I get these mixed up. On Patreon, we're doing the shallow dives, whereas bigger films are. And we're pairing them with the deep dives that we do every month here on the main show. So this month, we're going to be talking about No Sudden Move on Patreon. And that will pair with the uh, deep dive that we're doing today. So No Sudden Move will be released on December 6th. So watch mm-hmm. for that. Okay. And uh, yeah, then Soderbergh will completely wrap next month in January 2024, at which point we will have discussed... 34 feature films, I believe it is, and that is 18 on the main show and 16 on Patreon. I was counting them today, so I think that's right. And it's then quite a few, no? It's quite a few, and this goes back. It all sort of began last year in October when we were uh, talking about uh, Out of Sight. It sort of started mm-hmm. it all in a way. Uh, but that's been a fun, fun series, and that's winding down. So watch for No Sudden Move on Patreon, and that pairs with the episode that we're going to get into in a few minutes. Um, so that's it. I should mention, though, that our cabaret tie-in, that is completely free. That's unlocked and free forevermore. Go check that out. Give us a give us a try to see if you like the uh, the way we, ch- we chat about our uh, stuff on, on Patreon. You can also find Heat from earlier this year. That is free to go and check out. Uh, also you will find the exorcist that was released. That tie in was released on Patreon in October. So that is free. And I guess it's just our way of having 50th anniversary celebrations all around for, uh, at least three great things that happened in 1973. Bob Fosse won his Oscar for cabaret. The exorcist was released and I was born. So your parents bind. <laughs> So there's that. <laughs> so yeah, we're all about what the, it is. Like you know, like the, the, you can't avoid it. Yeah, no, there's, there's yeah, you're, no, you're, no you're avoiding a, the fact. You're a Valentine's Day present. You know what? If you do the math, who knows? It probably <laughs> was. Be close to that. <laughs> They're celebrating Fosse's Oscar win, possibly. I don't know. Uh, anyway. We've got to move on from that. <laughs> if Patreon's not the way that you would like to support us, but you'd be willing to throw us a one-time donation, such a thing, firstly, would be very, very appreciated. Um, you can do so at ko-fi.com slash uncutgemspod, ko-fi.com. Um, or alternatively, if you're in a position to leave us a review or a star rating, that's appreciated. You can do that anywhere where you get your podcasts or you can send us comments to the show. We love hearing from you. Uh, you know, tell us what we got right, what we missed. It's all good. Um, join the conversation and you can find us through our socials. You can find us at our website, which is www.uncutgemspodcast.com or send us an email 
at uncutgemspod at gmail.com. And sparing all that, you know what? Just keep listening. We love that you're out there and we appreciate every one of you who sort of tunes in to listen. And you know what? Tell your friends about us. If you have any friends love movies, get them to try our show. We appreciate that as well. Okay, here on the main show, we're into a new month, December 2023. So Uncut Gems' new monthly theme is going to be holiday horror. So expect a a month of us making puns around the word slay, I suppose. (laughs) But before that, before that, as we've done all year, as I've alluded to, uh, we start the month off at the Soderbergh station today. We're here for our monthly deep dive into Steven Soderbergh's 31st feature film, Let Them All Talk. It's essentially about me. I mean, honestly, that's what authors do, don't they? Let me just see. I don't think... And and another thing... I've ever been at a table with two more self-obsessed people. I don't think I ever have. This is a first. This is a first. We care for each other. Do we? Do we care for each other? Yes. Yes, yes, we do care for each other. This happened in your youth. This happened so long in your youth. And today, this very day, we have lived most of our lives. Right? Are you going to continue this ancient battle for the little time that remains to us? Do you even know what happened yesterday? When we were out of communication with the world, do you know what happened? You don't know what happened. Do you know what happened? Does no. anyone know well, what I happened? I was working, so I wasn't. Well, of course you were working. You're always working. Yes. Elon Musk sent many, many telecom satellites into the sky that look exactly like stars exactly like stars so now when humans gaze at the night sky they won't know if they're gazing at a star or at a machine let them all talk is a 2020 release directed by steven soderbergh and once again edited and shot by soderbergh under the pseudonyms peter andrews and marianne uh, bernard this film stars Meryl Streep, Diane Wiest, Candace Bergen, Gemma Chan, and Lucas Hedges. There's a couple other players in there, but those are the those are the heavies. And this is the story of Alice Hughes, played by Lucas Meryl Streep. Lucas Hedges. Yep. yep. I said him right. Anyway, I, th- I certainly I thought, have now. I, th- I hope you did because <laughs> you know he's like the uh, for me. This is like the note. This is like this is what this is who you get when you can't get um, Matt Damon or Matt Damon's too old for the role. <laughs> I suppose. I suppose. Yeah. Th- this is kind of like him. <laughs> this is basically a five character party, and uh, he's he's one of the five for for certain. Uh, so yeah. Anyway, this is the story of Alice Hughes. Uh, this is the character played by Meryl Streep, who's a celebrated author who embarks on a transatlantic cruise on the Queen Mary 2 with her friends, friends she hasn't seen in upwards of 30 years. So she's going on this cruise to accept a prestigious literary award, and her friends are joining her on her own dime. Her friends are Susan, that's Diane Wiest, Roberta, that's Candace Bergen, and her nephew, that's Lucas Hedges. Alice is struggling with writer's block while she's working on a new book, and I'll say she has a slightly strained relationship with her literary agent who is also 
on board, but Alice doesn't know that. The agent is played by Gemma Chan. Uh, and there are unresolved issues amongst the friends, we'll say, and secrets and tensions come to the fore. And that's basically our film. This this film is a character piece. It is theme driven, I would say. It is not a thrill ride. It's a boat ride. It's not Ocean's Eleven. It's an Ocean's Crossing movie. So... <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate like, how much how much effort you put in the prep. Yeah. Oh, you're welcome. Horns already. Everything's all stand. lined up, baby. Yeah. And, all, all, and all I do for these is I just, started you know, drinking at six a.m. I just I just let stuff happen. Meanwhile, this guy comes in here with receipts. I, I just feel inadequate. <laughs> this is not okay. I, if I had more time, <laughs> these puns would really cook. But you know. I had to get the ocean in there because, you know, they're crossing the Atlantic Ocean. I had to get it in somehow. Uh, okay, so pun smithing aside, uh, behind the scenes, I don't have a lot of notes behind the scenes. Deborah Eisenberg is a credited screenwriter. She's an award-winning short story author, um, and I didn't know who she was at all. But uh, I do know now that she's Wallace Shawn's significant other. So I know, inconceivable, that guy. When Wallace Shawn talks about Debbie in My Dinner with Andre, he's talking mm-hmm. about Deborah Eisenberg. So uh, Eisenberg's script, I, when she dropped the script, I guess more so than a script, it was uh, like a 50-page 50, 50 treatment. You know, it's a 50-page <laughs> outline. Um, when she delivered this, this ended up being a launch pad for the production of sorts. Soderbergh used it as such. Um, so it's to, essentially a short story that <laughs> she wrote. Sort of. Uh, so this was, as I say, it's a launch pad. The, act, the actors launched off this with imp- by improvising a lot of dialogue. I didn't see this anywhere, but I've, from what I'm reading between the lines, I think there was a lot of uh, there was a lot of rehearsal beforehand because the actors had to say in improvising their dialogue um, and and forming the dialogue. But I don't think it was just we're going to improv improv this scene and sort of see what we get because Soderbergh called this highly structured improvisation. So anyway, so I, I think the cast got to together it with second. rehearsals. It's it's going to be a bit of a talking point. Um, but anyway, then also too, Eisenberg seemed to be in part of that process because she would take notes and feedback from the actors and then she would write up uh, sections of script and prose. And prose writing was her thing, Made sort of made, it, made sense, I suppose. Do you think so, she's uh, Jesse Eisenberg's mom? Is she? I don't. I don't, I don't know. know. <laughs> just, I'll let you do. I'll let you do that research. I had that thought, but I didn't think to look into it any further. Um, don't think so. But no, I'll let you, she's not. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll let you take that to the research department. No, um, she is not. No, she's not. Okay. So I guess the gimmick for this production is ultimately that the whole thing was shot on an actual transatlantic voyage of the Queen Mary two in August of 2019. Six months, I might say, before ships were docked everywhere across the world or anchored offshore and quarantined. Um, so, you know, six months before cruise ships became big super spreader danger zones, you know, we had this little project on one. Uh, it's an actual two week uh, trip from New York to Southampton uh, in the UK. They got all the ship footage during this trip and then they had a few. Uh, a few scenes that aren't shot on the, on the ship. Uh, 
when the cast and crew were shooting on the Queen Mary 2, the ship would close off sections of the ship so they could go about their business and, and uh, you know, do, the, do their location shooting. A lot of passengers apparently didn't even know this was going on. I've never been on a cruise. So too so. busy drinking. Yeah, and these ships a, are also massive. They're little cities, so I I don't know anything yeah. about the Queen Mary too, but it's probably one of those ships that can house four thousand people. So you know, a sizable village. Um, yeah. So this film is sort of Soderbergh returning to his grassroots. I want to say he's using a lightweight camera, and the crew is pushing him around on a wheelchair. This is sort of how he went about, you know, the the shoot and getting his footage. So I presume he showed up with his small little lighting kit and just was just sort of ready to go and just be a very tight, efficient grassroots type of uh, production. Um, it was funded by Warner brothers. From what I can tell, it was always ever intended as an HBO max original with the timing of things. It was released during the pandemic as a, as an HBO max film. Um, I, I sort of think that was always ever what it was intended for, but I, I don't know that for certain. Um, and I don't know much about the the budget of it. It seems like it was a very small budget, but streamers don't reveal their budgets, so I have no clue. This uh, as much as a bunch of tickets to cross the ocean on the Queen Mary 2, which, by the way, interrupting this program and say that yep. the capacity is, um, after 2016 refit, 2,695 2, passengers and 1,253 officers and crew. Wow, okay. It's a few people. So yeah, four thousand people all together. Yeah, like were, these. You were not too far off. It's all, it's just almost bang on four thousand people. Yeah, I'll, I'll take that as I'll take that as a win. I was thinking four thousand passengers plus another thousand, but I'll take that as a a win Don't, on my. Like you should have you should have just said like yeah, called it. Made, yeah, yeah. Now I'm too honest for that. Nailed so. It. Anyway, I don't know anything about the salaries of Soderbergh and and the ladies. Uh, because you know they are they are significant Meryl Street uh, probably stars like twenty mil, <laughs> <laughs> but by all accounts it seems like it's an economical uh, production. So as mentioned, it's an HBO Max uh, streamer. So there's no box office to speak of. It was released during the pandemic, and I'm going to say without too much fanfare, audiences according to Rotten Tomatoes were very much meh. The audience score on Rotten Tomatoes, uh, Rotten Tomatoes is 49. Letterbox.com likes it not too bad. There's an aggregate score there of 3.2 out of 5. So, you know, it's okay. Critics were some mixed, but I'm going to say post mostly positive. You know, Peter Travers liked it. Ebert.com, whoever the reviewer there was, really liked it. Globe and Mail really liked it. Almost everyone liked it. There's a few sour pusses, I guess, in the room. Um but the big thing seems to be that audience audiences didn't care about it at all. So, I have an idea why? Jakob, <laughs> I'm going to ask you that very question. Who do you side with? The audiences who thought it was a dull vo- voyage, or the critics who thought that this was, you know, a, a a good character study of three women played by three accomplished actresses? You know, in a way, it's kind of ironic because the film kind of deals with that. <laughs> uh, you know that this is kind of a movie that just like okay, well, this is a movie that you kind of think as a critic or maybe as a filmmaker themselves, they were probably just saying like, look, we're dealing with these things, like the idea of um, we're trying to say something interesting, we're trying to push the boundaries of art, we're trying to do something special, you know, come, we're being literary in here. Meanwhile, 
people want plot. <laughs> it's just like, but it's so plot driven. It's, you know, like it's just A to B to C. It all slots in. And it's just, yeah, it's conventional. Yes. And I can't wait for another one. Uh, <laughs> that's kind of what people like. People don't want entertainment. And this film is not entertainment. Having said that, I liked it. Uh, I'm not sure if I loved it. I think this movie kind of just runs its course and uh, and essentially just wants you to disembark while it's still not in port, I think. I think this is kind of where I just think like, wow, there's a 90 minute, this, there's a 90 minute masterpiece in here. Let's just to rehash my, just to reheat my old, sort of oldie, right? Uh, <clears throat> I'll say this. I like what I like what this movie's trying to do. I have a feeling I like what what Soderbergh's trying to do here because he, I think he's kind of almost coming full circle after coming out of retirement. He's almost like revisiting old flames in a way, I think, uh, in some of his films. And then this one kind of seems like it fits very much, sort of in the spirit of what he would have been up to in the nineties. I think. Um, maybe even in the early 2000s, because it feels like he's back into this sort of, um, like this movie is first and foremost an experiment or a challenge, as in like, let's do this movie on a ship. This is the challenge. Let's just constrain ourselves production-wise because, you know, we'll just lock ourselves on a ship and let's try to tell a story here. But at the same time, um, let's try and not confine ourselves to a genre. Let's just make it a little bit more contemplative or theme-driven so it's essentially kind of like, you know how we always talk that he's kind of like one for me, one for them. But then again, like when you think about it, you kind of have to expand it. You know, like Soderbergh has these big movies, these these big sort of prestige, uh, Ocean's Elevens and uh, Erin Brockovich's. You know, like these movies that kind of would be studio vehicles with massive stars. And then he has these, um, these sort of very, very low-key indie ventures like the girlfriend experience the bubbles and then he has these experimentalists like quasi godard films like full frontal and schizopolis right and meanwhile this film is kind of like a like a bridge between some of them as in like this is kind of like an indie venture like in the in the vein of the girlfriend experience but with the cast of erin brockovich <laughs> so yeah so it's kind of like that, as in like, let's do an experiment where we where we get people confined in some ways and then let's get these actors who are, uh, like, put put them in front of, a, like, put put a script in front of them that's not really a finished script in some way. Let's, let's have them be part of the process um, and see what happens. But the caveat in here is we're not dealing with non-actors or people who would be um, more amateur. We're dealing with people who have Oscars under their belt, like Meryl Streep, right? Mm-hmm. And I appreciate that because it, it kind of just shows you, like the you know, like they they kind of just well, in in a way, they kind of just like we've been talking for like, about John Cassavetes for like a whole year now, so it, it's almost impossible not to make a comparison because they think they're like they're trying to do something approximating like this of the Cassavetes sort of workshopping style of. Um, improving through rehearsal um, with the uh, idea of dealing with people who actually know what they're doing all of them as opposed to just having like the guy's mom 
like Jen Rowland being like the professional in the room and then there's this guy's mom, there's Simmer Cassell's friends and, and everybody else. Right. And Martin Scorsese is like running, you know, like guarding the premises. Steven Spielberg's fetching cigarettes. <laughs> it's kind of like that. Uh, but I, I'll say that, that I, I, I like what this film's trying to do. I like the, uh, the sort of the uh, symmetry between what it's talking about as in the idea of the high art versus uh, the lowbrow entertainment uh the aspirations of a writer the let's just say the responsibilities of a of a creative uh, with respect to their inspirations and maybe and, and the i suppose the role the societal role of a writer which like always i, I always kind of come back to stephen king i feel like i'm like a broken record but you know that you know, it's like he always says, like writers are secret agents. Like you're supposed to be just hiding in the, in society and just look at people and then just write shit down, you know. Um, and then what whether certain aspects of this approach breach like limits of impropriety, I suppose, when you start dealing with um, like writing from your own life and and your life being not just about you but the people you meet, and then you end up actually drawing from other people's lives and making a career based on based on observations you've made on of other people and how people drift apart because some people are snobs that's Meryl Streep in here and yeah it's quite a lot baked into it it's just the only problem I have with with this film is I think this movie is kind of a little bit too languid for its own good and eventually I think it's running uh, out of steam and just kind of subsists on momentum alone and it's, I suppose it's kind of like this ocean liner. It's like if you switch off the engine, it's still going to drift. And I think this movie kind of has this sort of propensity to occasionally just drift, you know, just meander a little bit too much for my liking. But I, uh, overall, I, you know, like it's a, it's a Soderbergh film. So it's crisp, radiant, very um, characteristically, like stylistically, very characteristic of, of, of Soderbergh's sort of toolbox. And also an interesting experiment. Mm-hmm. However, I would probably not put it in anywhere, anywhere, anywhere at the top uh, of his of his filmography at this point. That's kind of how I'm going to leave it for now. Over to you, sir. Okay. Um, yeah, well said. I think you're hitting a lot of the things that are on my radar. They, both in, both in terms go of go through your list of talking points like on an, all in one round. Oh uh, to a point, like you, uh, you're hitting a lot of uh, common threads in my first impressions, and and a lot of the things that I want to sort of delve into too. But um, just to say, I wasn't necessarily looking forward to this film uh, when it came out a few years ago. I was aware of it and it did, nothing about it really seemed too exciting. Soderbergh was really the main thing. Like it, it looked like it was very poorly marketed. You know, the, you've got the, the main PR image is just this face of Meryl Streep. Right. And you know, it's, it's deep a in drama, thought, just deep in thought, close up. It just, you know, and, it's important what the this the snapshot from this it's from what which kind of which scene this is from. I think this is important actually into the film or to and the, I, the poster. I, I would say that as well, and I also feel that you know this this image in their poster is close up, and that might be something I feel is lacking throughout. But um, I wasn't necess- <laughs> I wasn't necessarily looking forward to this to say, and it was poorly marketed, came and went, and I didn't really care. But I watched it, and I quite liked it. I think I liked it a little bit from how you're describing your opening take. But um, but everything you said that was a positive, I think I'm 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 all over that. But there's something here, and it's it's missing. Uh, 
Matt Damon. It's missing well, Matt Damon. Maybe it's missing Matt Damon, but my note is that it doesn't have an oomph. <laughs> you know, yep. there's just Agreed. there's something in here that there's there's a passion, or whether it's a central scene, or there's something missing that is keeping it from being in the the top shelf of of Soderbergh films. Um, I do really like it. I, I do think it's a grower. I, I think that, you know, if I watch this multiple times, I'll probably like it more and more each time. I think it's quietly thought provoking. Um, we watched High Flying Bird recently and it was dry and felt like it was homework. Um, this one, I think, is pensive in the same way, but Let Them All Talk actually has characters with lives that are very much lived and these characters are people that I feel I can tag along with to a certain extent. Now I don't relate to them because I'm not 70. Uh, but at the same time, like these women are interesting. They've earned their wrinkles. They've earned their attitudes and, and riding shotgun with them is, is sort of fun and, and interesting. So this to me is, is similar experience in a way to high flying bird, but like these characters I can, I can hang out with, you know, and it's, it's got depth based on uh, the character piece. Um, so it is sort of like a hangout film for me, and I appreciate that. As I'm watching it, the film so you it made hang out me with snobs. <laughs> uh, one snob, and then one snob, and, a, and, and two a few two colors, two char- two colorful characters. But the film it made me think of most actually was Sex Lies and Videotape. So when you say like it feels like his earlier films, I would I would agree with that, and it's it's almost even in in the process. You know, take this. Uh, <laughs> Like that is uh, sex lies and videotapes, I guess was, was written on whatever, seven or eight pages. And mm-hmm. then the rehearsal process sort of fleshed it out. And it feels like a similar construct to, uh, to this film is like, this is how we sort of, we're going to arrive at our, our, our story and our dialogue and our script and, and what happens. So that's interesting. It also hinges back to this trio of friends with a, with a, a link, and a connection that goes back to university. So that's sort of another thing the Sex, Lies, and Videotape has. And Sex, Lies, and Videotape has this presence of the videotape, which is a transcriber of truth, which could you know create drama and issues. Here you've got the power of the book. It's literature as opposed to uh, filmmaking that can record the truth. So it's even sort of an interesting type of uh, parallel in the themes, only Back in 1989, Soderbergh was looking forward in life because he had all of his life ahead of him. And now he's he's got these characters and probably like himself, um, they're looking backwards at, you know, the, most of their years are behind them. The most of their, their careers behind them. So it's, it's I don't know, I, I've, I've, I feel that this is sort of the the old person's sex lies and videotape, I'll <laughs> say. And I and I, I sort of like that. It's not sex lies and videotape. It's friendship, betrayal and books or something. Um, but it's, it's, it's cool. And, and I do sort of, I get along well with this film and I, and I think it is a grower. So yeah, it's charming. I'm glad you mentioned Cassavetes. I had that note in here too. I think that it does conjure that type of idea of filmmaking where I, where he wants to capture these characters and, and the feeling because not everything is explained to us, which I love. I love the fact that there's this drama and some of the drama that exists between these ladies goes back three decades or more mm-hmm. and we're not told what 
the drama was specifically specifically what happened in Candace Bergen's uh, life specifically. We know it's not good and her marriage fell apart, but mm-hmm. we don't we don't get all the sort of details, but we don't need them. Right. Because we we see that these these women are going through things and these, they have things on their mind. And that's all I need to sort of try to get a character study out of them. And, and you know, and, and it works and I, I don't need to be force fed everything. So, yeah, I quite like this, but it, there's 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 something that it's it's keeping it from uh you know really 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 being special like it is special but it's it it could be a lot more and i'm not a hundred percent sure what it is um but maybe we'll get into it so um yeah my first question was why do you think the audiences were sort of met on this i won't answer that and i tend to agree with sorry i won't get into that because i think you you answered it and i tend to agree with what you said is uh it's not really something that has a rising action so why would i hang out with this and i think this has always been the problem with hangout films mm-hmm. um but i'll say this, who do you think this film is for maybe i'll frame it that way who do you think intellectuals <laughs> it's for the no it's for the same audience that enjoys um like a woody allen film i think in a way mm-hmm. i kind of feel like this is like a woody allen film but then again a woody allen film cannot be really like pin like pinpointed that exactly because woody allen again like i'm seeing woody allen a lot but Woody Allen has has had at least for a good chunk of his career um, the same sort of propensity to mimic the style of others because he was he started like this sort of like a Godard with a sense of humor. He, he was kind of like a Lester esque in this, in in in, his, in some of his in some places. He he was kind of like Kubrick in some places in in like a I think Cassandra's Dream. He's honestly doing at the Palma in like Match Point. He's been. He'd be doing like an Antonioni sort of like riff. So he he has he has had fun with filmmakers and riffing on them. Like he has scenes that look like they're taking out of a Scorsese film with orbiting cameras around the table. They look like they're taking from Goodfellas. Only the the joke is that you know, like instead of watching gangsters talking about dismembering bodies or cooking spaghetti with with garlic shaved with a um with a with a with a razor to melt in, in the olive oil or something like this. No, you, you watch like these sort of Brooklyn academics, these intellectuals talking about their favorite philosopher, you know? Mm-hmm. So this is for this is the same audience that would enjoy this, as in like the Silver Fox audience, like the 50 to 60 year old sort of couples or, who with like higher education and some, and, and some kind of a productive career in, um, let's just say like the middle class audience is kind of the, what, what, who this movie is for. I suppose. Um, problem is, this this kind of crowd doesn't doesn't necessarily go to the cinema, and then this film wasn't really in the cinema, so this wouldn't be the the crowd that just sits down on a Saturday and is like, let's see what's on HBO Max, honey. You know. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's so. I suppose this is the problem of this movie and not making enough of a splash with audiences because there isn't enough people around to champion that kind of filmmaking. It's not for everyone. It's fine, you know. It's not the Eternals or, you know, the Marvels or something that uh, you well, don't know who this is for. But even the Marvel, I think, even the Marvel universe is figuring out that the way the business is changing, it, it's it, everything is separating into the little segments and the little niches. Everything is becoming niche, and to a certain point, you know, Marvel themselves aren't going to appeal to everyone, and it's becoming increasingly niche. 
I mean, just to kind of, if we want to kind of just quickly di- diverge on the tangent, uh, like this, as as you say, everything becomes more con- like uh, more segregated and more com- compartmentalized, um, and this could be also partly like bolstered or maybe reinforced by um, the the almost like the YouTube philosophy of making movies, as in like you make some like. Like, this is something that people actually will tell you to do if you want to be successful making content. This is what this is what we were having. We don't have movies, we have content, right? Because you make something, you see what people think, and if they like what you do, you do more of that. And then then you, you kind of have this sort of like self-reinforcing loop of doubling down on certain things on on the on the on almost on the lowest common denominator. So all all you end up doing is trying getting more and more red meat into what you're doing to attract these sort of carnivores <laughs> to audience. So you're, you're self-reinforcing the idea of radicalizing your audience into these compartments because then you don't appeal to everyone. You appeal to the sort of hardcore fan base who like this particular fetish, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So that's kind of where, how we end up with this. And, and I suppose now you have these movies that are just straight up only for these sort of like red pilled dork men who <laughs> who just like feel like who feel like women are some kind of dangerous to them and or you have movies who are just aimed at the sort of like insufferable wokies on on the other side of the ledger and at the same time also you have films that are only for just insufferable snobs so <laughs> yeah like, uh, the yeah. entertainment industry is is completely going that way i've have to say like if you look at the world of, of cable television, there's a channel for every, every little interest, you know? So everything has been carved up the, the years of uh, friends and Seinfeld having mass audiences because there were only 10 networks, mm-hmm. you know? I mean, there are a few like this, like these sort of big winners, but then again, they are, they tend to be almost chastised for, like getting things wrong or maybe being like disrespectful sure. because they operate with stereotypes because they have, because what they want to appeal to is a general audience as they want to have a, this mass appeal. Right. So yeah. like Yeah. It's damned yeah, if you do damned so. if you don't. Exactly. Um, but one, one thing is that, that does exist is there's, there's so much choice out there for, for people. And I, like, I think you're bang on is that the, the audience that this might appeal to isn't the audience that has four or five different streamers. Mm-hmm. They probably have Netflix <laughs> and maybe they have like BritBox TV or something. Uh, and then but what but they, they probably have is a book in the, in bed. Right. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Or traditional cable or, or whatever. So yeah, I think that's a big piece here as well. And it's and it's interesting to me they that... They cook in high heels. This is the kind of movie. The people <laughs> who come back home and they cook in high heels and they have a massive glass of wine to take the edge off and the, and the, and the husband in this family has a, has a nice tall glass of whiskey while he's still wearing his suit with maybe slightly loosened tie and they talk about Henrik Ibsen, you know? <laughs> and, <laughs> it's kind and of... The gentleman has a pipe in the newspaper. <laughs> And, well, he would have a very nicely well tailored suit because he's probably like a director in a, in, in in a snazzy company somewhere, and then she's a fashion designer or 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 something, right? And 
or or maybe she, she he's a he he has this sort of like elbow pads and he's a writer and or and she's a professor <laughs> at a liberal arts college that's kind of the kind of the, this is the kind of audience this movie is for like how many people do you have like that not many <laughs> right and anyway it's it's interesting to me that this is the world that Soderbergh is operating in now like our our chats the last few months Soderbergh is working in a completely different cl- uh, climate than closet, he was. Yeah. was completely that? different closet. <laughs> completely different, yeah. He, it's a completely different world from sort of the Section 8 days where, you know, he was doing Oceans and he was helping other filmmakers get their $30 million projects, you know, uh, into uh, greenlit, this, this type of work that he was doing after his shortly after his Oscar. Mm-hmm. Here, I think he's finding something that he's interested in doing and then he's chasing the right way to get it financed. So he he doesn't care about the blockbusters, you know, like he's he's far removed from that. But what what projects interest him? How do I get it made? How do I you know how do I get the budget? And where is it where is it going to find the audience? Whether it's niche or larger or whatever. Like I don't where, ca- I don't think he cares about the audience. He cares I think about he does. I, do I, this. I, I don't think he cares about the size of it. I think he cares about it for himself. But I, I think too, like he 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 likes he likes his films to be seen, right? Like I think that's that was a big thing he problem he had in the nineties mm-hmm. is that I made these and they're they're getting decent reviews, but they're not getting seen, and that was sort of a, a big thing. And, and just in in the his book where his interview with Richard Lester, like he he you know he often talks about uh, you know just sort of wanting to you know, wanting to find, find his audience. And, you know, he felt sort of be, beholden for the, the people that in, invested in him to make mm-hmm. their money back. So, you know, to, to land with the correct audience. So I think he cares to a point, but, but ultimately I think he's finding, wants to find the projects and then try to figure out, well, wh- how do I, how do I get this distributed? How do I get this scene? Cause he's tried so many things in the films we've talked about the last couple of months. Like he's coming up with Logan Lucky, his own distri- distribution model. Now he's, mm-hmm. he's, he's sort of fishing scripts around to different streamers. And, you know, this is sort of the third streamer film, High Flying Bird and The Laundromat were both Netflix. Mm-hmm. For some reason, I thought this was Netflix too. But I always not. did too. No, it's not. It's <laughs> yeah. Completely different company, but, but anyway, and, I think too. You said this earlier too. There's an experiment in here. This this idea of let's do this in the context of a cruise. Let's get special permission from uh, Cunard Cruise Lines to do this and uh, see if we can do it in a two week shoot with you know just whatever constraints we have on that uh, on that hmm. crossing. Uh, so I think there's that experimental type of excitement here. But I think too, like he's he's interested in just these smaller projects and how how am i going to get them made mm-hmm. i mean because he like we talked about this as and like he's he doesn't necessarily have like a passion project that he desperately mm-hmm. needs to get off the ground he doesn't have like a megalopolis he doesn't have um like ferrari then just like oh goodness like how many years have i been trying to get this movie off the ground he doesn't mm-hmm. have any of those because he all these projects he he wishes to get himself attached to he somehow gets made because he just says, like, I don't want to make a movie for $150 million. I'm fine just picking up an iPhone and just renting a, a room somewhere, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's kind of... I don't think necessarily he, he cares about the audience side of things that much anymore. I think like I think you're right when you say like he, he did it in the 90s because he really wanted to 
uh, a establish himself on the scene because he was kind of like like he came and went because sex lies and videotape was like that's it we have a new orson wells on the scene and then he buggers off to make kafka king of the hill with the nandi underneath <laughs> and and like uh, like a, a bunch of films that really didn't hit with anyone um, and, and, and all of a sudden, like, this, this is where you become a footnote, right? So, unless you hit it big and he hits it big with out of sight, right? But in here, he, everyone knows who he is. Everyone who needs to know who he is knows who he is. So it's, it's not like he has to, um, explain himself. He needs to get money for a film. He can, he, he, he will find a way. If he doesn't find it in a big sort of traditional legacy media studio, like Universal or, Warner Brothers or somewhere, he will go to a streamer and they will happily give him some money because he's Steven Soderbergh. He's not a nobody. He's a he's a he's a he's an Oscar winner, right? With mm. a few decades of, of filmmaking under his belt, um, who's earned a lot of acclaim over the years. So you know, like he, like people know who he is, right? Yeah. So I don't think it, he he cares that much. I think like it's. I think I think you're right. I think this is a challenge. As in, like let's do this on the ship because now it's a challenge that has a time constraint because you have to just make this thing work before before reaching the port because as we reach the port, we also have a few pickup shots we have to do, <laughs> we have to do of the ship coming in. There, there's a piece in here, and I don't know if I can articulate it quite right. There's a piece in here though where I really think that. The entrepreneurial, the entrepreneurial side of uh, Soderbergh is part of him in a way that wasn't necessarily there, say, in, in the 90s. I, I think now that, and this is maybe where I'm talking about the audience, I think now that if he looks at this, this film, oh my gosh, I've got three 70-year-old women in this film. Who is going to watch this? Where, you know, I, I think that he has... Uh, an idea of where he can get the niche market for it, uh, you know, like, uh, and how big a, how big a project it's going to be and mm-hmm. who it might be that, that would be willing to, you know, fund, fund such a budget. So, and, you know, he might have a list, like something like this would, because of the Meryl Streep appeal would probably appeal to Netflix as much as it does to, uh, you know, HBO mm-hmm. and, uh, Warners anyway. But, um, but I, I still see that as a, a piece in here that he's sort of, trying to sort of figure out this, this new, this new business, right? Like, and, and you're trying to feel, well, if the story I want to tell is a bit longer, maybe I can, maybe it's better as a, a mini series. Cause, cause he did, he did the, that mini series app thing, mosaic. Mm-hmm. And he's got a couple other mini series out there now, just this year. Um, what are they called? High Is it high command or he's anyway, he's got a couple of the mini series that I sort of want to watch. Oh, I don't know. Something I do not know, Michael Cera. Uh, but anyway, so I, I think that he's he's like Woody Allen's, just like, well, let's get a quick mini series with Amazon, and whatever, and just get Mark Miley Cyrus to be in there for like six episodes or something. <laughs> yeah, like, I, yeah, and whether and I think it's through maybe like business connections and sort of again, Soderbergh at the producer level, like he's he's being a little bit different of a player than I would say he was in in the 2000s after his Oscar, because we talked about him as, oh, well, he's trying to support other filmmakers and he's trying to, you know, bring some prestige films to a bigger budget or trying to bring big budgets to uh, indie filmmakers. Like 
there was this there was this piece where he was, he was advocating and he was trying to you know make things happen. Now it seems like he's sort of locked in on just sort of doing his own doing his own thing, which I like. But I, I see the entrepreneurial piece insofar as he's trying to find it. Well, where would I where would I take where would I take this to uh, you know to succeed? Like he really pushed, from my understanding, for a third season of the Nick, which mm-hmm. was becoming too big of a too big of a vision because we wanted to shoot it in black and white and do these other do these other things so then i forget which uh tv studio that was but anyway they oh, the they Nick, dropped the Nick? It. is it cinemax cinemax yes pretty sure so so anyway like i, I so I, I i feel him fishing a bit more here if, if that makes sense i'm like okay well what do i want to do and then once i like something how, how do i make it happen and you know like the unsane thing and the Logan Lucky. Well, I'll just distribute it myself, and and it it ties into I think like this idea that he he wants to be in control of his whole production as much as he can, um, just so that it can st- it can continue to be his work, sort of like mm-hmm. Sex Lies and Videotape was, you know, before there were you know too many chefs in the kitchen trying to tell him what to do. I think like at, at heart he's still an indie filmmaker, and in mm-hmm. a way, again, like to just bang on the Cassavetes drum, he's actually doing stuff that Cassavetes always struggled to do because he never had the money to do. Mm-hmm. Um, as in, like he can't afford these things because he had he had a period of acclaim that kind of just buys him the sort of the clout and and the trust of people who need who who's fifteen million dollars at a time you may need. Um, which is something the Cassavetes never had. And also he has the freedom of actually shooting essentially for free without spending money on film stock because he can just pick up a digital camera and failing that he can pick up an iPhone and you can still do incredible things uh, with consumer grade products, which is something that, you know, like indie pioneers in the sixties, seventies and eighties, they didn't really have. Um, so he's, I think entrepreneurially, he's he still works like an indie filmmaker, and I think he's he works as a as a guy who's started as a filmmaker, became a mainstream item, and then he just decided, you know what, I'm 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 I've I've seen it all. I'd like to do stuff I like now. Yeah, you know, I was happiest back doing sex lies and videotape. Yeah. It's just now he has the yeah. money to do this, so it's it's one of those that you know, like he. It's kind of like this sort of the midlife crisis, almost like that forces these sort of uh, things. Like, well, you just reevaluate and just say, like, you know what, I you know I could just as well just do what I used to do in my twenties and thirties. Only now I have the money to do it, you know. So it kind of feels like you're just like you're you're just trying to live on easy mode because you can, like, part of the sort of. Um, making it up the ranks in your 20s and 30s is the fact that you have to really um you have to really grind to make to make room and time for certain things so it's not easy because you what you what you, what you have is just energy and youthfulness but you don't have the money mm-hmm. meanwhile now he has just like he has the en- he has still still has the energy has loads of time and he has the money so he can just you know yeah, <laughs> he can just do an indie film and not care about stuff that indie filmmakers would have to care. Yeah, in terms of having the money, I would I would say he has he has the money to do the the smaller projects. And smaller projects still with Meryl Streep in it. Fair, <laughs> yeah, fair enough. But I think that he's also resolved that you know what, playing the studio game when when he was with 
Section 8. He's not interested in, in those battles anymore because there are so few, as and he, these are his words, medium budget, like a $30 million piece, medium budget film for an adult audience. Mm-hmm. And so if that's not out there for him and he's not interested in anything that has a $100 million budget because it's franchise-based stuff, which holds very little appeal to Soderbergh, um, then he's resolving himself to, you know, the the $2 million projects, the $5 million projects, the $10 million projects, or, you know, that that type of thing. I mean, I, I suppose, like, f- financially speaking, as in, like, this is the demise of social media, uh, not social media, but physical media, kind of ensured that, right? Because, like, all of a sudden, like, these, these 30 to $50 million films are not, even they don't have a chance of being prof- profitable in a conventional market because like, like let's be honest a, f- a 50 million dollar netflix production is not profitable in its own right it doesn't make its own money you don't know how much it's it's making all it all it does is just like well all you know is just well this is how much money we generate every month because there's so many subscribers we have maybe we can just force some fluctuations here and there but based on because we what we have is a steady revenue stream, so you can you can then um, uh, project based on that and say like, well, by, based on our revenue now and our growth now, we can say like, well, this this next year we'll have this many million of dollars to spend, so we can just spend it on new on 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 productions, and we know that we're still making money because it's not like if if it's not it's not like a, like the Irishman can flop. Right, because it was never going to bank any type of um, end result on how much money it makes at the box office or yeah. through physical media sales. Um, and further to this, like on this idea of the streamer's business model, um, this is further, I think, making sort of niche successes <laughs> because mm-hmm. Netflix will say, okay, this this is sort of what our, our income is and we have so X number of dollars to sell. So we have... X number of dollars to hit the kids market, X number of dollars to hit the tween market, X number of dollars to hit the prestige market. So for audience viewers and for those films that'll be in the algorithm for, you know, a couple of weeks, X number of uh, dollars to hit this other market. For all these dads, let's just finance extraction too. Yeah, exactly. So it's very calculated the way this is split up, but it's furthering the divide and it's furthering the the whole idea of this um niche world that we live in there's something for everyone out there even but it's never the streamer. same thing we don't have the <laughs> kitchen sink film which is we like like back to the future which is an action comedy with something else and whatever and science fiction as well like you don't have things like this very That's often true. so it, it yeah I, I don't think it's if it's correct to call them kitchen sink films because you know like it's it's it evokes different things. But I know what you mean though. At the same time, you can say like yeah, it, you you get this of it can enforce the compartmentalization of this as in like you're making a movie for the silver fox, you're making a movie for a dad, you're making a movie for the kid, you're making a movie for mm-hmm. for uh, for the twenty something, you're making you you're making a movie for the twenty for for the twenty something female of color. Because uh, who studies uh, like lesbian dance dance theory at some kind of a liberal arts college? Like you, if you target these so specifically, mm-hmm. then you know, like it effectively alienates everybody else, but this little sub demographic of of twenty seven people that you want to target because you have the money to do this as well. Which I think one of the one of one of the thing about it is 
let's just say it's a little bit refreshing because in in a in a traditional movie release format like a dad movie doesn't make money like mm-hmm. extraction doesn't make money at 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 the box office like plane didn't make money at the box office this movie doesn't get seen it, it's released in february or whenever um like the prom a musical with what's his face um forget it um but who else yeah james corden and meryl streep doesn't make money at the box office but it's you know it lives on a streamer like a hand-drawn animation about irish folklore uh doesn't make money at the box office it makes money on apple tv plus you know like the wolfwalkers or something like that right sure so but so at the same time these movies that technically wouldn't make any money they do exist because unless you're Woody Allen, you do not make a movie like Let Them All Talk, right? Or like Soderbergh, I suppose. But you know, like a Woody Allen would make a movie like this about people talking in mm-hmm. a, like about books for 90 minutes at a time and would still go into the cinema. And people would watch it and would make just about enough money to make bank because, you know, it didn't cost much money to make. <laughs> So, but, but yeah, unless you're like a Titan of this, who's in his eighties, who's, um, who's, who has a name and a reputation, and I suppose some, a degree of infamy as well, you don't, you don't, you don't get to be a 27 year old startup making a movie about intellectual issues of, of the upper middle class, unless you're Sofia Coppola, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Or uh, and and even even with that, I mean, I, I like I love her movies, but then the idea that she gets to make movies like this, as in like like the Bling Ring or Lost in Translation, at the at the age that she did, has, has exclusively a lot to do with the fact that she that that she is rela- related to the people that she's related to. That's kind of what it is. Like, yeah, I, you, you don't go off this, get off the street, and start making movies like this willy nilly unless you're an absolute genius or you're related to someone important. Yeah, oh, it's it's oh, for this film to be made by a young filmmaker, it's really hard to make a splash with this because this film didn't make a splash. Um, mm-hmm. But it didn't have to. It did it didn't have to, just because Soderbergh knew the size of the movie that it needed to be, and you know where it would be, where it would fit uh, some sort of marketing niche, and it was think, you know with a streamer, and it made a splash with critics, right? Because this is the kind of movie that makes. You know, it's kind of like a Barry Jenkins movie, right? Like it's a movie that that like if Beale Streets would talk, would talk, for instance. I think I don't think mm-hmm. anyone has seen it, but everyone loved it. It won awards, mm-hmm. deservedly so, because it's an amazing film, in my opinion. It, it I think it won at the Indie Spirit Awards, all the Critics Choice Awards, all these things they they won. These movies win because they're they're sort of tailored to. A appeal to people who look for for stuff in films as in like like this film appeals to someone who like listens to a conversation uh about these like with this of meryl streep who's this like this buffoon snob who goes like ah plot who needs plot i'm just thinking about my book and my you know i don't know i have a writer's block i don't know what i'm gonna do and i don't want to write a sequel and and then her friends talk about how they're excited about this guy, Krantz, and how he just churns out these mystery novels, and he has a process. He writes a book in three months. 
um, and this conversation where there's she's kind of just trying to be condescending to him, and they and they love the fact that he's writing these sort of plot heavy novels because they get to actually be entertained by what they read, and a critic will look at this and they will see a parallel to the filmmaking business. They will see a parallel to to certain things and say they they will be able to easily draw a line. It's like Meryl Streep is is kind of what a what a snooty high art filmmaker is is Soderbergh talking about his own craft his own business like there's this sort of idea of like well you can either entertain or you can do something special and then how what do you do when you when you try to kind of bridge the gap do you do do you have to uh, commit to existing in one of these two worlds and all of a sudden like this conversation becomes uh, something that takes over their own sort of algorithm and they um and they become like the, the the movie has its own sort of second win on just in in the brain of a critic, and then as a result of that, the critic will say like, "Wow, this movie just forced me to think about stuff like this." Uh, f- five stars, four stars, I don't know, and all of a sudden becomes an interesting item because I get to talk about this with my other critic friends, and then we kind of go from there. Meanwhile, a general audience member will go will go like, "This is boring. Where's the plot?" So it's kind of where we are. Um, I'm glad you brought this up because I, I was, my next question was going to be, uh, what do you think Soderbergh's interests are at this point in his career? So aside from the experiments, is there anything topic wise or what, what kind of project do you think would appeal to Soderbergh? And I guess like my end of the answer on that would be, I think these, uh, sort of veiled conversations about the entertainment industry, uh, they're popping up a little bit more. Frequently, we we saw it. I I, I think it's there. High behind, flying bird, I think, right? High flying bird behind the candelabra. Um, are we missing something else, but anyway, we've been having these chats over the last couple of months, and I can't help but see that here, and that, that this this is probably something that is very much an a, an appeal and an and and an attraction to to Soderbergh in in this. So. Uh, yeah, so just further your thoughts on this, because I think this is part of maybe of what the draw is, maybe also working with Streep again. Um, but, you mm-hmm. know, uh, take it away. For, keep going with your thoughts on this, because oh, I think this is a big draw to Soderbergh. Do you to ramble more? This never happens. <laughs> like I, I feel like I just, I always just like a ramble, ramble. It's like, I think, I think I should stop. I think like Randy's really angry at me. No, <laughs> like no this, this is great. Do you, do you think this is something that attracts Soderbergh to this on top of the fact that, you know, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a compilation of things. It's like, Oh, I get to, uh, you know, have this light camera and I can do, you know, be pushed around in a wheelchair again. Oh, this would be fun to work against the constraints of, you know, what they give us on the ship to use in any given moment and uh, have a cruise. Do you, do you think it's a combination of, of that and the fact mm-hmm. that this is actually about the entertainment industry? It's about reaching an audience because that, that is a strong part i think of what's in here especially the second half of the film i think it gets the into it in a sort of a significant way i think it's it's more self-reflective than that even i would say like i think the sort of the 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 allure for for soderbergh is threefold as in like let's do this on the ocean liner and just set ourselves on like a two-week deadline because otherwise southampton here we go and we have to get off the ship because they'll ask us out Mm um and the uh, the other bit is the uh, idea of let's make a movie out of um as in like let's revisit my youth again and let's make a movie in a in in a way i would have done when i was 27 um mm-hmm. by by way of 
improv. And by the way, this is where I've seen a few kind of critical um, sort of notes on like Wikipedia. It's just like, well, actors improvise everything. Improvising is not ad-libbing. Two different concepts. Yeah, Ad-libbing is making shit up on the spot and recording what happened. Improvising is... Um, is making shit up on the spot and then writing it down, <laughs> right? And 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 making sure it works. <laughs> as in, like, you know, yeah. I can't remember where I wrote where I read this as well. Like some, like maybe Tarantino said this that he had a conversation with Uma Thurman about this, and um, and then they they kind of just said like, improvising is writing. A great improvisational actor is a great writer, who mm-hmm. who. Will, who will write their own part almost as in like they will see the premise and they will write their own character. They'll fill in the blanks and they'll, they'll make stuff up and they'll write it down and they'll rehearse, but they'll, but there is a process in here that's structured and formalized. So mm-hmm. it's not like what you're seeing when M- Meryl Streep goes like, Oh, this man keeps me, keeps me going. No, she didn't come up with this on the spot. This is there, something yeah. that they've rehearsed. They've written down, they've, and they've agreed upon, but this is something that came out of her. Mm-hmm. That's the the difference. But anyway, so I think that's the, the second part of the threefold sort of allure is the fact that he gets to do stuff Cassavetes style, which I think he enjoyed when he was very young. Um, and the third one is the sort of the self-reflective allure of comment on the business uh, of, of making movies. And, and I think what's the more important bit is the comment on the sort of responsibilities of a creative. Mm-hmm. I think that's what this film is about, where, where you have these sort of friends, the forgotten friends of the past, whose lives this woman used to build a career around, out of make, out of writing stories where she magpied elements. Yeah. <laughs> I use the word magpie as a verb. I think it's inappropriate. But, you know, there's... It's the, okay. She, it's, <laughs> the language evolves. I can, I can take magpie as a verb. <laughs> so you know so she kind of magpied these sort of these sort of elements from their lives and then just used them to build some f- manufacture some characters for her books and then she became this sort of literary titan who accepts awards and she gets to go on a ship she gets she gets treated so well that no that, that whenever she says oh she needs to go to london to accept an award they say it's okay if she takes the ship because she's afraid of flying so she's rich enough to have phobias that normal people would just say, get, just, life's fucking tough. Get a helmet, Meryl, you know? <laughs> just get on the plane, stop dicking about, I don't know, just down a bottle of cognac if you need to and fall asleep for six hours. It's going to be fine. You're not going to crash. And then you'll be there. Yeah. And you'll be there. Not two weeks. I mean, but then again, will be another challenge for, for Soderbergh. Just shoot a film in six hours. <laughs> <laughs> on the red eye flight Stephen if you happen to be listening there's your next challenge <laughs> well, that's kind of um, why I see it like there's the self-reflection of a of a filmmaker pardon for barging in again and because apparently you like when listen to my voice and I do listen I do like to listen to my own voice too so fucking hey go for woo. it I started drinking at <laughs> 6 a.m. I'm just you know the the idea of I think this is the the most important bit the legacy of a writer, the most important aspects of, of the writer's life, the the responsibility and the mission of a writer and how it how this sort of in a Heisenbergian way affects the 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 universe that the writer interacts with by way of observing it. 
Um, do you think Soderbergh is coming to any conclusions here or making a statement? Do you think that he or he's just bringing this up as, as an interesting fodder for us? Um, because I would I sort of feel that he may come to a bit of a conclusion in a way just to say that uh, there is a debt that that creatives do owe because Meryl Streep mm-hmm. does come to that conclusion at, at the end of this. Um, and I feel that she is. And again, not a lot is really specifically said, but it does feel like she acknowledges a bit of a debt that she owes to the Roberta character. Mm-hmm. But then she says she deletes the book as well. And I think that's, that's, a- that's her coming to terms that like, so the way mm-hmm. I take this, so Meryl Streep's character is working on potentially a sequel. Um, we, we don't know to what her really popular book that was probably based on Roberta's life um, or to, uh, you know, the book that was sort of meaningful to her, sort of her soul food type of book. Um, but everyone, everyone else thought it wasn't the best book she ever wrote. Because it was boring, but it spoke to her. And this is another thing I think that Soderbergh is saying is, you know what, it's okay to make those films because that's what, that's what this film is actually, this sort of soul searching film. Um, it's okay to make those films. Those films are important, but it's perfectly fine to make your uh, populist stuff as well. Um, but anyway, back to the point, I think he's saying maybe that um, it's important to acknowledge to a point that you are lifting from other people's lives. Like, I think mm-hmm. that's the conclusion that Alice, Alice comes to. And, you know, she's sort of facing an illness and, I don't know if she's coming to the end of her life. I don't know if she knows she is. Oh, she um, is. She knows she is because she she speaks to Lucas Hedges in one scene. Like, who's this man? Or who was it, Lucas Hedges? I can't remember Lucas, now who. Who said, "Who's this man who 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 leaves your room in the morning?" And he goes, that's like, Lucas oh, Hedges. Without yeah. him, without without him, uh, what was it like? He he keeps me going. She says, as in like to just instill this sort of like, well, maybe he's like a lover or something. No, he's a doctor who injects her with blood thinners. Blood thinner, yeah, through it through an IV. But I, I don't know if necessarily it's fatal, right? Because you never know what's going to happen with a clot. Maybe it just breaks up on its own. And I think that's the mm-hmm. that's the thing. But um, but at but any she's rate... She's on borrowed time. That's kind of what the, the point of this, this little thing, I suppose. Yeah, for sure. I just, I don't know if she knows that. I know that she has to be careful with her health and that turns into a little bit of a twist because we think that she's... Oh, just this this snob that won't fly because she's quirky or she's scared of flying, and you know she can get Cunard to host to host her on a voyage, a transatlantic voyage. Um, mm-hmm. No, it's actually a blood clot is incredibly dangerous at high altitudes, apparently. So mm-hmm. you know there is there is a legitimate risk with her flying. That's why she takes the cruise. But so that turns into just, a little bit of a twist. Like takes take those blood thinners, just load up. Six hours later, just load up again, and you're fine. I don't know, maybe, I, maybe this is it. But, but then again, she's smart enough know to know about. that this is this is dangerous to her. Like she's a right. she's a she's an intellectual. I expect that she'd know. So yeah, so based on that, I think she's coming to the conclusion that you know what, maybe I have wronged Roberta. You know, why else does she delete the book? Like maybe. Maybe she was doing a sequel. I think this is sort of, they don't tell us. So, you know, we're, and I, I like this. I like that I can sort of explore in my own head. But I I take it that she was making a sequel to the popular book. Maybe it did have to do with the aftermath of Roberta, or at least in some form. And then she says, ah, maybe I shouldn't do this. Mm-hmm. 
I mean, I think I think that's that's possible, definitely possible. Uh, but the fact that they didn't they don't explain it, you never know. Like it, it kind of leaves other options open as well, because for the entirety of the voyage, they also talk about this sort of um, the clash between sort of like the book that I like as a as a high artist. Like this is what speaks to me, speaks to absolutely nobody else. Mm-hmm. But this is the stuff that I want to do. And I appreciate this, in a way, as, as an author of a website that no one ever reads. As in, like, I appreciate it. I do certain things just because it's part of my process, you know? I don't care if someone reads what I have to read. I just have to get it out of my system. Mm-hmm. I do not give a toss, right? And at the same time, you have also the other side of things of do what other people like and that will make you popular and famous, right? And I feel like this is a conversation for Soderbergh himself, where he finds himself in the sort of like he's. This is his d- dilemma as a filmmaker, and like you can either do. He realized that this, especially if you look at his career, the stuff that he likes to do, I think, is the stuff that no one else does like. As in, like people slept on, uh, again, like the like. And they did, they did really sleep on Schizopolis. People slept on Bubble. People slept on the girlfriend experience. Find all yep. the niche ones. And I bet you money, these are the ones that he likes the most. Uh, and they also tend right. to be, and they probably also, they also tend to be the most sort of experimental ones, the more challenging ones, the, the more fun to make, right? Meanwhile, he probably, he can turn like Ocean's 13, and like he can literally direct it from his bedroom. <laughs> sure. Right, <laughs> yeah, it, this is why, but yeah, he, but, but it's just like people will eat it up 376 million dollars at the box office or whatever, people will eat it up, and he goes, like I don't care, this doesn't get me going at all. This is sort of like this would be like some someone me telling me, like, someone no one cares, like, no one cares who I am, but you know, like, if like one when I when I read. How do you make money on the internet by, by writing? I decided I don't want to make money on the internet by writing because it will kill me, right? If I yeah. ever wanted to. Because I would have to write shit that I would hate writing. And I don't want to hate writing because this is, um, this is one of the few things in life that brings me joy. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, like it, it's kind it, of what it is. <laughs> so as, I, as, as I'm thinking about Alice, Meryl Streep's character... She, she, I think that this even supports even further the idea that she is in fact writing the sequel and that's why she has writer's block. That's why she can't finish it. She's not satisfied with it because it's, it does, it's not the project that speaks to her. Mm -hmm. So there's that, that, that fits in as well. Like, because it doesn't fit what she's doing, but she feels this tremendous amount of pressure to do it. And then she walks away. Like I'm, I'm liking this, this read. And I think it's, I think it's totally in there. Like Mm -hmm. this project she's working on, she's struggling with because she's been disconnected from her source material. So she doesn't know it as well. And she's just, she's trying to appease maybe Gemma Chan and uh, the, the public, the publishing agent before Mm her. Um, because the agency has Sonya, been asking for this sequel was, right? for for forever and she just doesn't have any passion for it. That's why it's such a struggle. And what mm-hmm. she does have a passion for is this thing written by his Blodwin Pugh, this obscure, obscure writer. But um, but it, she has a little speech in there which says, isn't it fascinating? Isn't it a miracle, she calls it, that someone's words several generations ago can sort of leap through time 
and attach themselves to me and, you know, connect with me. And I, I think you're hundred percent right that Soderbergh finds this interesting. You know, if, if, if I make this film for a small segment of the population, that's cool if they like it, if they vibe with it. And so mm-hmm. I think that's, that's a big piece in here. And I think that these types of stories as, as baked into the, the narratives as, as they have been in behind the candelabra and high flying bird. Um, but they're there and that's what appeals to them. I think that these are sort of drawing forces for them because I think these are conversations that mean, mean something to him. Um, I think also just, there's an additional thing because it's important that she does, that she dies before reaching her destination. Um, as in, because they want to go and visit the gravesite, Right. But then for the whole movie, they talk about, it's like, oh, blood went through this, blood went through that. And they, she just, she's so, um, like, excited by this writer. And it's a massive inspiration to her. Mm-hmm. And I think this is also some, this is a comment on, okay, well, there's this filmmaker who has his own inspirations and he wants to take you to see those inspirations. That's his mission, to kind of just make you see what he sees. And he goes like, well, let, let, me, let me take you to his gravesite. This, oh, let me take you to Orson Welles' gravesite so that you see what I see in this guy. And then without him to, in, to interpret this, it, all you'll do is stay, stare at a tombstone and say like, I don't know why we're here. I, mean, I don't even like her writing. And it's just like, we're here for Alice, Okay. And they, and they just pay their respects to someone who do, do who they do not understand or appreciate just because they appreciate someone else. So I suppose, um, I suppose maybe this is a subtle comment on the legacy of, of, of the creative, of the filmmaker, maybe in this instance, as in like, maybe what I, what I do, people won't get what I do. Maybe they won't like what I do, but maybe people who did like what I do, even, even though they may not understand why I like certain uh, inspirations of mine, maybe they think they do, but maybe they don't. At least they, they will maybe uh, tip their hat to the people I really looked up to. So I think like, so in a way by them, um, taking inspiration from others and standing on the shoulders of giants, they remind other people that these giants existed and their memory lives on, even though they still don't get it. <laughs> it's a yeah. very odd way to say, <laughs> but I think this is kind of a part of the commentary that's kind of baked into this film in a very clever way. But yeah. Yeah, it's yeah, it's totally there. And I actually think of a couple of weeks ago when I was watching all that jazz in preparation for that episode, which was... A there should, <laughs> there should be a porno episode. film, by the way, all that jazz. <laughs> For no remake. <laughs> Maybe there is for all I know. Um, but anyway, I watched that with Campbell and I felt, okay, this is me sharing my excitement for Bob Fosse and for this film, which I think is one of the, no, sorry, the best film that I've ever seen. And I'm sharing that with someone else. And I'm hoping that they catch some of that, some of that passion. They, they catch the magic the way that I did a way that I caught it. And um, there is something to the fact that you want to share things that mean something to you to to other people your friends and your loved ones and you sort of hope that they sort of see it the same way that you do but it does, doesn't always turn out that way um, do you want me to uh once you, when if, okay it's got it's morbid when you pass <laughs> when you pass do you want me to fly to canada to organize at a wake a screening of all that jazz like like this sort of like and everyone's gonna be like why are we watching this? <laughs> it was Randy's favorite film. 
We don't even like Bob Fosse. We're doing it for Randy, okay? And who are you? <laughs> who is this man? Who is this old fart? I'm just like, you don't get Who's it. this guy? Randy would want this. Uh, you don't get it. Randy would really want this. I know things that you don't. I I would want you to uh, come to my funeral and tap dance the way that Bob Fosse did a tap dance for Patty Chayefsky at his funeral. There you go. Okay, uh, noted. <laughs> Let me make a note. <laughs> oh goodness, I, I need to uh, actually make a mental note. Just like, how do I actually co- make make this? Like, if you act, actually ever get a message like Randy's Randy's past, I'm just like. Also, reminder: this is a reminder <laughs> for you to quickly, <laughs> quickly YouTube <laughs> tap steps. <laughs> Learn to tap, tap Quick, dance. Quickly do some Google research on Gregory Hines or something. Uh, as I'm booking a ticket to Canada. <laughs> Uh, to crash a funeral. <laughs> uh, anyway, back to uh, back to uh, our movie. Let them let them all talk, and maybe switching things up a little bit. But I think all this is in here, and I, I I'm loving this chat actually. But I want to talk about these three characters: the these these ladies, uh, Susan, Roberta, and Alice. Mm-hmm. These older protagonists, and there's just the perspective that the film has looking backwards on life rather than, you know, like, like I said, like this reminds me a lot of sex lies and videotape where people's careers and lives are in front of them. And here it's sort of the opposite. What, what does this bring to the discussions? Is there a depth in here? Do you feel that this is probably natural because uh, Soderbergh, I think he's 57 when he makes this film. So Mm -hmm. probably more of his uh, filmmaking years are behind him than in front of him. Do you think he, do you think he had a, like an episode like before he decided like I didn't make this movie like where he like was home alone and he like choked on a piece of steak and he thought he's like that's it I'm gonna die <laughs> <laughs> and he just said like life's finite man like I need to you know? <laughs> this could end at any second like this is such a precious thing I don't know I'm <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I think that these characters, Roberta and is it Candace? Candace Bergen is Roberta. No, yeah. Candace is Bergen's Roberta, and what's the other one? Diane um, Weist plays Susan. Susan, Susan. So yeah, like I, th- I think for for me, I think they're kind of like a reminder of like as an artist, you run like because what you're supposed to be doing again, quoting Stephen King, you're supposed to be a secret agent observing other people's lives and making notes right it don't have doesn't have to be like your friends lives but you know other people's lives because you know either you have to have a vivid imagination or you have to have a great life or you have to be good at observing still imagination comes with it as in like you observe someone on the street and just imagine the life they have and you write it down you know um however with this run this runs the risk if you actually start thinking about lives and and imagining universes too much you will detach from your own world and i think susan makes this sort of point although it will come back when she's just like you know we're because we're they're on this ship as in like they're divorced from reality they don't know what's happening in the real world they don't have like mm. internet or whatever because they're in a ship they're they're not on on solid ground you don't know so 
like the Elon Musk has launched Starlink and there are these like satellites uh, up there and, and if you look at the night sky the night sky is not never going to be this like you, you will never know what it's like to look at mm-hmm. the night sky the way it looked um, at the night like if Emily Bronte looked at the night sky it will be different right it will be just stars right and planets and things like that but you know like there won't be any any like man-made objects in the sky right so she says, like, look, if you think about this shit too much, you're you're going to miss out on these sort of revelations, these very crucial momentous occasions in your life where like these like be, before this moment life was one way and after that was another, and there's no coming back. You can't turn the clock back, right? And you can miss out on this. Um uh, yeah, at, at the same time I think Roberta's reminding her, it's just like, look, what you're doing is again magpieing from my life because your own life is not worth magpieing <laughs> as in like so you're so you're essentially just like sacrificing your own experiences to document other people's experiences and live vicariously through them instead of just living <laughs> so just to, so as, as I suppose maybe this is also a piece of commentary as in uh, on on the life of a creative and like look at the sacrifice we're making is it worth it like making this movie that no one's gonna watch we could just live the life that that we're pretending to have on screen mm-hmm. in, yeah that's kind of what these characters are doing they're kind of grounding the sort of idea of like Alice being this sort of like highfalutin snob and also like look what you're missing out on like maybe we don't have the sort of the flashiness the pizzazz the razzmatazz of being a of being a like a high-flying sort of intellectual um but we have but we have scars we have wrinkles and we we have led lives meanwhile you don't have anything because i think that's kind of the biggest crisis of alice is that she doesn't really have her own identity her identity her identity is kind of attached to the characters she creates and she doesn't have anything for herself she's alone by the way right yeah she is and like she's even seeking connection with uh lucas hedges right like her her Mm -hmm. nephew who i think she only came to know recently because i think he made a comment that he didn't really know her until the last few years or something. But mm-hmm. I'd like to add to what you say. Like I, I really enjoy this perspective of these characters looking back on their lives. And I, I think there's, there's a comment in here too, which, and maybe it's cause I had my birthday and I'm old. Um, but there's this sense that there's, there's a lesson in here because Alice has lived her life, whether she knows it or not, sort of walking on people, taking advantage of people, maybe oblivious to it, but basically she's totally been hurt, oblivious. She says people. this to her. She says yeah. this to Roberta, no? It's like, oh, you're talking about money, not about love. And she actually thought that they have some kind of a connection. Like she's totally in denial. She has no idea. She's Sally in cabaret. Yeah. <laughs> but the <laughs> point is here. In front of a government building. <laughs> the point here is she's a user and has has hurt people and she's lived her life that way. Roberta, on the other hand, has been hurt her whole life. And now as a 70-year-old, she's in this situation where she hasn't enjoyed life because she hasn't been able to get over it. She's harbored resentment. She's harbored, uh, you know, 
regrets. It's turned into anger. It's it's turned into frustration. Um, and I would have to surmise from from seeing her behavior in this is that it's prevented her from being able to uh, patch it up with her husband. Whatever happened, we don't know. Form new long-lasting relationships with uh, friends or partners and you know it's it's not doing her doing her any favors as she's sort of flirting and trying to potentially find a, a sugar daddy this late in the game on the cruise it's so I, whatever this damage that was done to her she's lived with it and she hasn't been able to get over it and meanwhile you've got sally sorry susan diane weiss <laughs> sorry <laughs> Yeah, maybe you did that to me. But you've got Susan, who is this wonderful example of someone who is grounded throughout all this. She's sort of the peacemaker, although we don't have a lot of scenes of that, but she does, she speaks sort of the the sage mental health wisdom. You know, this is just going to cause you problems if you can't get over it. And, you know, why can't we get all get along? And, you know, like I, I also like that that bit where she talks about the, this the Starlink satellites because well this this the sky is forever different and we've just got to you know realize that you know this mo- moment is now past and we're in a new reality and how are you going to live in that reality and how are you going to see the world so she, she's very grounded and sensible and I I really love her character and I think that she's probably the the character in here that's that's easy to overlook even though she's the one with the F-bombs and the, mm-hmm. you know, the, the amazing R-rated drops about, you know, orgies and whatever. But, um, but Diane Wiest is, is the sensible person. And I love that you've got these three characters that sort of line up in this fashion that if you, you know, look, how do you want to live your life? You know, do you want to live it being a user where you don't care about people? And Alice is only cluing into this, you know, later in life. Do you want to do you want to clue mm-hmm. into this when you're 70 or do you want to clue into this when you're 25? Um, and then Roberta, who you had a struggle, you had something that you couldn't get over. But now it's just ter- you've turned it into this little push down nugget of hate in the, the center of your being and live your life that way. Um, but you, you've got uh, Diane Weist, who's sort of very practical and sensible. And, you know, she's helping people go through. I think she's a lawyer or something helping uh people who the murderers who uh you know had a bad turn or something but she's she's helping people she seems to be accepting of people who they are and understanding that you know the best way to be is just sort of accept the reality of the moment and do the best that you can and you know move on forgive move on and and so i i really like just sort of the juxtaposition of these these three ladies do you think the the what what's her lady is it Deb, Deborah Eisenberg? Do, do you think she sees herself in Alice? I wonder if she sees herself in some way in all of them. I wonder maybe this is part of something that she is communicating through these three characters. Like, how do you want to live your life? How do you want to deal with your you know your relationship problems? Um, and she's looking back at it uh, sort of in a, in a way that. Um, that I'm getting from, from this film. Like she's the same age as these characters. I should mention, mm-hmm. I looked that up. She's, uh, she's right around the same age of, of these three women. So they're all around from, I think 74 to 77 now. Mm-hmm. So Wiest, Bergen, uh, Streep and 
Eisenberg, they're all within this three, four years. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I think that this is something that is very much the point of Eisenberg's work. I know like she's coming up with the ideas and maybe the the scenes and, you know, the ins and the outs, the into the scene and out of the scene and um, maybe the dramatic arcs. But I think that this is sort of a big thing that, that she's probably um, a big part of is looking back at life as an older woman. How do you want to... Um, how should you live your life? How, what lessons has she learned? And I think they're sort of coming out in the, the form of how these characters interact or the little tidbits that we get from the relationships between these three uh, lead characters. So I, I think that um, Eisenberg is a big, is a big part of this bit at least. You know, I'd probably say like, you know, the rule of thumb suggests, even though I think she, she, you may be right and say like, Oh, she sees herself in, some in, in all of them because she will probably just plant traits of hers in different characters but the rule of thumb suggests if a writer writes about a writer they identify with the writer yeah <laughs> so it's kind of like what you will always see like again coming back to stephen king like some like there's always a writer and a teacher or someone who's like that's him that's like he, he he somehow identifies with this character because he's probably anchored some of this character's experiences in some of his own experiences in this character and just use this as a launch pad. I mean, like no one, like, no one, I suppose, has experiences like, I don't know, having to resurrect their kid in a pet cemetery or something like that. But, you know, like he would, you know, Jack Nicholson in, in you know, like in Jack Torrance in, in The Shining, right? That's, that's, mo- that's probably in, in many, in more ways than one, Stephen King dealing with his alcoholism and his addictions and his demons, right? But anyway, come back back to the ocean liner. I feel like there's something in there in terms of that Alice is is kind of like a real life, sort of hi, like highfalutin, sort of high art writer dealing with their own legacy or dealing with like what is the point of what I'm doing? Like, am I doing this for myself? And why am I doing this for myself? Should I should I be doing this for other people? instead and if i do this for other people do i actually do what do i owe them because their life experiences i because this woman doesn't have her, her her own life and her experiences because she put them all on hold kind of like karen that um literary agents when she she has this sort of conversation with lucas hedges i think about how she slept through her twenties because it was all good and, and all of a sudden now she feels this pressure and she needs to have kids and she doesn't know um, what do you think yeah, of the Gemma of, Chan character? Yes, sort of. Is her name Karen? Is her name Karen? I think it <laughs> I is Karen. Yeah, 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 yeah. Gemma Chan. Yes, she's really good. Um, Agree. But yeah, I just I just feel like there there there's a there's an interesting conversation about like having a life, living a life, and the way you can live your life. And maybe it's, I don't. I'm not sure if this film comments specifically about being a woman in any respect as, as opposed to just being a human but yeah it's interesting yeah i really like Gemma chan in here i'm not really familiar with her from her other work but i think she's fantastic I like every scene that she's in um but i would also say in particular there's this emotional scene where she is talking about these regrets she ends up having having mm-hmm. as i think she's in her early 30s she's she's talking about well i thought everything would fall in into place in my personal life i thought i'd marry my 
uh, boyfriend, Yan, and we'd end up having kids. And now all of a sudden I'm 36. My eggs are frozen, but Yan's no longer in the picture. And I don't know what's going on with my life. So mm-hmm. uh, again, this ties into, I think the, I, I think the, the, the lesson, the moral of the story, or one of them may be to sort of appreciate your time and be the Susan character, be grounded, be, mm-hmm. you know, ap- appreciate the moment, appreciate the people around you. Alice is just figuring this out in her seventies. Roberta hasn't figured this out. And Gemma Chan is on the verge of missing it because she's prioritizing other things. Mm-hmm. Yep. So I agree. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and, and also, I suppose maybe there's a womanhood commentary in, in in here as well because, in contrast to men who can, who don't necessarily have to make sort of certain decisions at a certain point in time because they, they for instance, like they're. Robert De Niro is eighty-four, and he's just fathered another child. He sired another of another sort of offspring. Like, what a legend, right? But for women, it's different because you have a mm-hmm. biological clock, and it's relentless. And at some point, it will just stop, and you're just like, "That's it. That's your window for being a mother closed." And for mm-hmm. yeah. I want to say, like, without exaggeration, vast majority of women, this is a, who don't get to have children when when they would like to have had children. It's a tragedy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that her Gemma Chan's sort of speech in this regard articulates this in a way that I don't know that I've seen really in other films. Like it is, it's sort of a, it's a really nice tender scene about you know regrets and confusion and just sort of reassessment of uh, where I am in life and you know what my values are. It's 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 really a nice a nice moment and it speaks to this this very issue that, you know, you and I can't understand, but, mm-hmm. um, but is is most certainly a thing. Like you can, so. I mean, you can empathize with it. You can sympathize with it, but then like understand this is, is like, I, I'm just incapable of understanding this. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but yeah, it's, it, it is what it is. As in like the sort of the, 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 I mean, I suppose this may be also partially, um, like this is a tragedy of modern society because we kind of, Weirdly enough, we kind of trick women into thinking that you know, like you have to spend the best years of your life pursuing something that's really not in your best interest. As in, because because the window of opportunity for something that you discover later on that it's like, oh, this is what I actually want to do, is going to close rapidly. So un- unless you have your ducks in a row, and then and and the stars have lined up for you, then you may end up really really dissatisfied. Or maybe even really miserable mm-hmm. as a result of this, because certain things you just can't undo. But yeah, that's it's. I suppose it's an interesting commentary, and I don't necessarily think I've seen it in too many places because it's one of those. It almost runs runs counter to the current narrative of what we're trying to peddle to people, as in like you know, you know, women are badasses. You know, go and just go and achieve, and and at the same, and it's great, it's great, do that. <laughs> But at the same time, we're saying like being a mother is somehow inferior. I'm just like, look at these all these women in this film are kind of somehow sad because mm-hmm. you know they they kind of had have had their own tragedies in lives and they're kind of all all kind of sort of alone. I think not sure if they have kids like like Susan and Roberta. Do they have kids? Uh, 
Uh, well, uh, Diane Wee Susan does because she's chats with her son at the grocery store at one point. Yeah, but Roberta, I don't think she does. I don't think she does. Right, so she, Robert, this, Roberta's relationship with her husband fell apart, and I, I and, and if I understand it correctly, she kind of blames Alice for it because this would be the sort of the, the grudges and regrets that she kind of held, held mm-hmm. somehow bottled up. And it's almost as if like the job she ends up having, which is mm-hmm. selling lingerie, it's it's almost representative of the fact that she ended up gravitating towards a life and a career that re- revolves around trying to attract men mm-hmm. <laughs> or the superficiality mm-hmm. of uh, courtship, you know, as opposed to substance in, in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. She's there's, an, it- there's an interesting scene in there, by the way, like you can see how she hates these sort of like smug, snobby, snobbish. It's like, Yes. Well, I was told there's going to be, um, was it, is it turquoise? No. No, it was teal and peacock and blue. Peacock blue. There's a, there's a set in peacock blue and I come in here and all I see is teal. <laughs> Lady, there's a fine line. There's a fine line. Because <laughs> it's in Texas. I'm color sensitive. And just I, like, I'm a designer actually. <laughs> and you can see like the, 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 Candace the, Bergen is a treasure. Oh my God, she's great the in that. Face she makes, it's just like oh, I can just that something bitch. else. And I'm just, I feel like she's just oh, like that bitch Alice I used to know. Yes, yes, <laughs> totally. I I think Candace Bergen's performance it's here such is a great just moment. fantastic. Such and a it's, great moment. It's just, actually, I'm a designer. I'm just like oh, I'm color sensitive like that. I'm just like, I'm sure you are. You. Asshole, you're an, you're a privileged idiot. Is, is what you are, as uh, what Bergen's look is saying. I I love Candace Bergen in this. I think she is just. I love how she doesn't fantastic. give a shit. Like she's just like, well, I'm I'm off for my cruise. Did you get my yes. email last week? No. Well, that's a you problem, not a me yep. problem. Yeah, I'm, I'm gonna I'm need you to cover. I'm, you're gonna have to find something to cover for yourself. Nope, that's why you're the manager. You thirty-year-old bitch is what she's saying. It's like you—you yep. you get the big bucks because I don't know how you got your job, but I'm not going to worry about it. I, yeah, I, I love Candace Bergen in here. She's mm-hmm. such a great, 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 great performance. Um, anyway, I think she's actually better than Meryl Streep. Oh, I think Meryl Streep is the least interesting of the three. I don't know if that's a hot take or not, um, but I really like Diane Weist in here as well. I, I, I think mm-hmm. that they performance wise and even to a point character wise i know like alice is sort of the centerpiece and everyone sort of uh hangs on her coattails the the narrative is just structured that way um but i think weist and bergen are the, are the ones who shine like streep's great streep's doing mm-hmm. her thing um but it's these we learn so much about streep through the through the other characters so and i think that bergen and uh weist they absolutely glow here they shine mm-hmm. they're just they're there's something else um but i want to ask you what your thoughts are on lucas hedges and his character where's he fit into this lucas hedges is an interesting guy because i think at this point he is he just right after like waves maybe i really uh, liked him in waves yeah i like the um, guy and also uh f- uh three billboards is around that isn't he in that like he's all I over the place around this time he is. a boy erased he... is around this time mm-hmm. is, is it boy is he in white boy rick <laughs> no he's not 
<laughs> no, I don't think. Um, but he's around a lot of different places. Like he's popping up a lot, and he's yeah. So he was in waves and French uh, French exit and let them all talk. Um, yep. Honey Boy. He was also in Honey Boy. Honey Boy was really good. Uh, okay, um, I didn't see that. Mid nineties. I mean, he had a kind of because he was like the big brother in mid nineties. Um, have mm-hmm. you seen Big Ninety? Uh, mid nineties. Uh, no. Oh, no. you gotta see mid nineties. Okay. It's amazing. <laughs> you're That's talking about the era for a second. It's like okay. Uh, no, no, mid- Jonah mid- Hill's film. Jo- it's the Jonah Hill film. Yeah. Okay. No, I didn't know he was in that. Yeah, it's um, really good. Um, yeah, I like, I like him. I, what was he nominated him. for? While we're on it, Lucas Hedges was Manchester by the Sea. Mm-hmm. He's really good in this too. Yep. Lady Bird. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sorry, go ahead. What, yeah, what do you, I like what do you him. Think of him. I like him, although he doesn't have a lot to do. He he's kind a of like a. He, I'll he, say that. He needs a haircut. <laughs> what he needs, although it may come may come back, I'm not going to tell. He needs to learn that if you go into a place where there's an auditorium, where someone speaks in the center somewhere downstairs, and you get to sit on a, on a, like a fold-out chair, like in, this, in the theater, take your fucking baseball cap off okay <laughs> you don't have to wear it indoors in fact it's probably a good rule of thumb if you go get indoors any headgear unless it's a yamaka comes off <laughs> okay unless it's a yamaka a turban or something like it's a like a religiously sort of co- connected headgear great you know if you if alaikum, as i said but, but anyway. i'll defend Gemma chan who also had a hat on in that very same um as a talk that uh, Meryl Streep was giving, Alice was giving this talk. Gemma Chan was trying to remain incognito, so I will defend her use mm-hmm. of that. Oh, wait, <laughs> she, what, what was she wearing? Also a baseball cap. Also a baseball cap. Yeah. Okay. Well, my, hmm. women get but the privilege of actually wearing he- headgear indoors because for 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 women for women the hat the, the some kind of a head coverage tends to be part of the outfit. And sometimes not for, baseball. Gem, not for not for Gemma Chan in this case. I mean, maybe it is an outfit of a, of, a, of a secret agent. But I think sometimes the the little hole in the back of a baseball cap is is for the uh, for a lady's uh, ponytail and is is used to sort of contain that. Yeah, I suppose so. But you know, like I would say, like this is back, maybe this back maybe to Mr. Hedges. Like, maybe I was raised in a very like conservative way, but my mom always said like. If you cross the threshold of a house, take your fucking hat off. <laughs> okay. A man does not, a man walks through the door while taking their hat off. That's kind of like the old West style. It's like, ma'am. And they will hold their hat like on their chest. Almost like, yeah. ma'am. <laughs> like, out of respect. <laughs> right? That's kind of so. Like, I see a, a man in just like a cinema or whatever, like wearing a hat. All I want to do is just like flip it off, just like that. <laughs> to grow up in a fucking barn, <laughs> Lucas. Sorry. Uh, so, you know, I'm gonna have to time. remember that. The, so the the day we get together someday in London or something, and we go to a film together, I have to remember that. <laughs> if you wear I a have, baseball cap indoors, I, I'm gonna. I, <laughs> do. <laughs> I do sometimes. It saves actually doing my hair. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, I mean, or, or maybe let's just put it like, 
anything but a baseball cap is is a fashion statement like a, a baseball cap is a, is a statement of a nationality where, where where we live in here like someone wearing a baseball cap just in general nine out of ten american okay baseball cap base baseball cap backwards 100 percent american oh yeah <laughs> 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 back to Lucas is. Hedges. <laughs> back to Lucas Hedges. Like, if you want to wear, okay, Lucas, if you want to wear a hat indoors, like, make it like a, I don't know, like a sombrero or a, like a fedora, something, right? Even with that, like a, a gentleman wearing a fedora will still kind of just put it in his lap. <laughs> a gentleman wearing a sombrero to feed her. Oh. <laughs> uh, you take this. You take off the sombrero. You, okay, like, yes. you know, like rock it outside. You know. Like a boss, or I don't know. But anyway, back to Lucas Hedges is like Matt Damon of the future generation. Like he, like it's Maybe. like Matt Damon cloned himself just for 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 posterity, just because. And then this is how the clone kind of develops. <laughs> <laughs> Although you realize as you goes as you go along that you're like, okay, even though the clone has potential, it's not the same. Like something, like some some re- recombinant DNA kind of snuck into the sequence, and it's not the same. <laughs> But yeah, I, I like him. But but he's he doesn't have much to do. He has the sort of like, like an you know like he's like a very he he's like a it's not a resting bitch face. He is a yeah, it's a resting cock face. Like he's just like <laughs> like it's sort of like really is this your favorite film? Actually, I think. Jaws is not the best movie of all time. I'm like, Lucas, shut up. Just shut, just fucking shut up. Like, that's, you just want to just strangle, like, put your, put your fingers around his neck and just squeeze. <laughs> he says this of like, this is, this is his demeanor. Just makes me homicidal a little bit. Just a tiny bit. I wonder but if overall, this is. Overall, I like him. <laughs> yeah, overall, I like him too. There are a few moments here, and I wonder <clears throat> if. Some of the maybe looser ends of this very structured improv that we're talking about. Um, I wonder if he's not doing well at this. Like I would say that in the scenes with his buddies, I wonder if that would be the type of scene where uh, Soderbergh and the script says, okay, this is the type of things that you talk about. And this is where you have to get to at the end of the scene. And they sort of just let them run. He seems less... He seems more clumsy in in some of those scenes with his friends. So I wonder if maybe he's not over-directed and maybe it's this sort of under-directed looser approach. Yeah. If it's this looser approach to how a scene plays out between uh, characters, then I wonder if maybe this is just, isn't necessarily his strongest suit or he needs a little bit more rehearsal because maybe that's, maybe that's where it's coming in. he, he makes these weird faces because maybe he doesn't know what to do with himself. Uh, just sort of throwing this out there. Cause I did, I found that when I found his, his dialogue, I should have written down what he was actually saying, but it was just really, I don't want to say phony, but it was just, you know, don't you understand? Like it was just, just sort of overcooked naturalism, I'll say. Like, and it just seems just of, you know, you just like, <laughs> listen to him and you want to punch him in the noggin. But it's not always. It's just a few moments here and there, and I, when when you're making the fa- the the face <laughs> that yeah. uh, none of our listeners can appreciate, but you know mm-hmm. the, the Lucas Hedges face, 
I, I just feel, I feel that type of moment in him once in a while in here too. Like I felt that when he was talking with his buddies in the bar, trying to, you don't know who my aunt is. She's a, she's a famous writer. And it just, it just seems that this is not where he's excelling, but, but yeah, generally I really like him as well. As for his character um, and the value of the character to, to the piece, I sort of like that he's there too. He's sort of a reflection maybe of the younger generation. Um, and he brings up this idea that, cause he sort of falls for Gemma Chan, um, which I can see. I thought she was lovely in this, uh, but he's oh, got, you were like, I can see she's a box. <laughs> yeah, she is. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's, so he, he makes a play for her and he, he also, she's to, in a very vulnerable state as well. She admits it to him as in like, well, like I really want kids. And he goes like, I, all I need to say is just like I really want to marry her and then she's gonna allow me to bang her. So you know, just like so he's he could just if he was a real asshole, he could have just really used abused the sort of the vulnerability on her behalf. He totally make him a make him a tall douche, and he looks like one too <laughs> with but, his baseball yeah. cap and long hair. <laughs> he he totally could yeah. have been he totally could have been a scumbag in this because um, like Gemma Chan is like she initiates almost every conversation. What are you doing? Want to meet at the bar? Are you doing anything tonight? Do you want to hang out? And so I can I can see why you know he would fall for her as well because she's showing the interest in him first. But anyway, because she's desperate, that's why. Well, she, uh, like she admits it to her as well. Yeah, as well. Like yeah. she feels the pressure as in like Jesus, I need to have kids, and she's in this mode like find a man, any man that looks like it's suitable. She's in this sort of like des- like clock is ticking, lady, and so. I, I, yeah, and Lucas Hedges goes like, she's really into me. Like, no, she's not. <laughs> she's on the clock. But also, too, I think she's lonely. She's making a like, mistake is what she's doing. I she's, think she's also lonely. So, and that's yeah, yeah. probably part but of her making, story, too. Still making a mistake. Because, like, look at Lucas Hedges. Like, what a suitable mate this guy oh, would God. make with his baseball cap and <laughs> long hair. Yeah, look at that Just hair. Put, put that yourself together, man. Unbrushed hair. <laughs> anyway, what I want to say about lucas hedges in this this bit where he he makes a play for her and she turns him down um and he tells his aunt about it and and alice it's, it tells him like maybe this is a life lesson that's coming right from uh eisenberg herself is like you know it's <laughs> it's important to, shot. <laughs> it comes back. it's important to take these lesson. chances you know, live in the moment and don't regret that you tried. Don't regret that you tried. So I think he's there in, in part for this this type of conversation too, and uh, to support Ask that. Forgiveness, and, not permission. Yes, <laughs> true. Um, but anyway, like I think he's there for that. I think he's 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 also there to sort of reflect the next generation, and you know, hopefully this generation learns these lessons so anyway that's all i wanted to say now they that. overthink everything they were just like i don't know if it's in my best interest if it's not 100 optimal then why do i even leave the house they're doomed and by extension we're doomed so lucas hedges took this lucas chance <laughs> he tried he tried to kiss Gemma chan and alice is saying yes don't regret yeah, taking that chance failed as you may go, go for, for it, it. And don't regret it so like what's the, what's the worst that could happen? Well, what what did happen is the worst. <laughs> she said, "No, I'm not into that's, you." That's actually the least least of his worries. Like he would be just like, like yeah, 
She could dox him online or just like, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, like Kia's car or something like Yeah, this could have been worse. Like she, like this, they, they read, like nothing happened. It was just like, he asked, she said, no, life goes on. <laughs> yeah. That's what it is. No, but it's just like as a, as a character, I think I, not necessarily, as a performer, I do agree that he, I think he's under directed and, he probably likes to be a little bit more directed, maybe. Or he, or I get or that he, feeling. He, he gets better when he's a little bit better, not better, but more directed. Because sometimes he feels like he just stands there, which is like, what do I do with my hands? What do I do with my hands? And he gets like weirdly conscious of his hands. I think he's just like, what do I do with my? Do I do take take a step and just like you see like he's pacing for no reason. Like when Meryl Streep dies, he mm-hmm. he like he and the way yes. he reacts. <laughs> I don't know what the direction of it in there is, and I would I would probably not be surprised if there was no re- no direction at all in anyway. But it feels like he's just in I a agree. very yeah. Oh, I like he's is he trying to go like I'm gonna be like Matt Damon in in um, Contagion, but he's not even close <laughs> or something. <laughs> but you know, like he's just very like I. What. Which is Lucas, just just relax and roll with it. Like imagine it's your mum, and you can cry on three. It's all it takes, and he goes like he's. It, I don't know. It's it's very unnatural in, in some of these sorts. Yeah, scenes that's just, that's a really good example because that that scene does play out as uh it's sort of grief, but I don't know how I'm going to make this post on Instagram. <clears throat> uh I'm. Uh, yeah, it is. It is really sort of a a clumsy moment. But Soberg, as I recall, I think he cuts away from that fairly quickly. <laughs> Unless this is supposed, and this is genius because he's supposed to also just like, well, it's uh it's kind of inconvenient for me. Hmm. What are we gonna do now? Who's gonna pay for my shit? You know, like I feel like this. Maybe this is it. That he's just in one way he's really. Uh, sad and in another he's a little bit more inconvenienced than sad but yeah anyway, it's a like weird I response just, either way a little less or a little more might have worked better I, I think so yeah I think like his mannerisms are kind of like a little bit more undecided than they need to be I think mm-hmm. and it kind of just like throws everything in, into question almost like you almost just feel like you're confused a little bit because you, on, on, not because the character isn't confused but the actor maybe confused mm-hmm. I don't know. I have one more thing that I wanted to throw out at you. And I, I guess as I was watching this, I mentioned that like, I keep thinking of sex lies and videotape. It is just, it just seems like it's a weird companion piece to this. Mm-hmm. And one thing that that film really had us had an ability to do is slow down time and sort of zoom in on the character. And in fact, it uses like the video camera you have the shot mm-hmm. at back in sex and sex lies and videotapes. You've got the shot of the video camera and then you've got the shot of the, uh, the actors and the, the camera can get in close. I feel there's something over the last few movies where Soderbergh doesn't like to get too close to people. He's not using close-ups. Am I right? Do you feel that? I just, I, there's something here that I feel that I'm missing a couple moments where I could have gotten a bit closer there's, I think he he has this in the laundromat. I think he uses close-ups in there. 
I think this may Less be... Less of that one, yeah. Um, I think in High Flying Bird... High Flying Bird is the biggest culprit, yeah. Uh, and I think this may be a byproduct of the fact that he shoots a lot of it on the iPhone and... And the biggest selling point of the iPhone is, is its wide-angle lens, I suppose. So he shoots everything in these wide angles. And I, I suppose this is also a problem because it detaches us from the character. I think that this could be the fact that he he wants to capture the um, the location, but it's shot on location. And these, I bet you money, because like, he uses these like wide-angle lenses, these locations look way bigger than they are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, probably. So, so in order to uh, get pe- get close to people's faces, you can't afford to do a nice zoom. So it may be just technical because if you if you do a nice zoom, then you're just like well, you kind of get people's face geometry a bit better because the, you you won't be seeing like the size of their face. <laughs> like you know, like if you if you use a wide angle lens from from up front you don't see people's face you've also yeah. captured their the size of their face in front <laughs> yeah. so it looks weird right and 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 if you do it like just in a moderate way it looks weird but only slightly so if you really want to photograph people how what in a way that they look like you have to kind of just like pull away and zoom in and if you if you're limited by the fact that there's a wall in the way and you'd have to just sit outside and outside there's water so, like, what do you do? So, I think what he does, he uses these angle, wide-angle lenses, and in order to get close, he would, if if you wanted to do this, he would make you think like you're watching Unsane again. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So, so it, I think that's what it is. Just a technical thing because he has maybe, small, these small, small locations, so he has to keep everything medium and 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 wide-angle because that's how you kind of get the best coverage. Yeah. You you may be you may be onto something there, but I f- I feel that there's something that this film doesn't let me get. For instance, closer to Roberta, uh, you know there maybe, would be maybe maybe this is his fetish. Like he thinks like like when he got older and he just thinks people like stink or something, and he just doesn't want to get close to them. <laughs> Who knows? I don't know it, but or it I, was a I, COVID regulation or something. <laughs> uh, this this was pre-COVID, so. Anyway, like that, that was something that I was pondering a bit because it just, it seemed, or maybe too, he's, he's turned into a guy that doesn't like to cover, um, dialogue scenes in the traditional fashion with, you know, just the over the shoulder setups and shoot it over one shoulder and shoot it over the other. Now, mind you, if this is dialogue that has been worked on a little bit and may have, you know, may, may vary slightly a little bit. Maybe he doesn't want to do that anyway, just because of editing and things not matching. If they're a little bit more off the cuff as they're going through their lines, mm-hmm. but, but it's still, it's something like he, he, he seems to prefer to reimagine a scene that is say a, a, a table set up with dialogue cross table. He doesn't want to just do the traditional approach. So when they're playing Scrabble, for instance, there's a great moment where Candace Bergen and Diane Weister playing board games. A couple of great moments. I really like that. Um, where he's got the camera hanging from the ceiling. And then they're outside on the deck at one point talking with the popular author. Um, and the camera's on the floor about 20 feet away or something. So he, he seems to just, in his approach to things, that's what that's what he would choose. And I'm trying to think now of how the scene with between Alice and Roberta, where Roberta 
confronts Alice and says, well, if you're going to write about my life, damn it, I want 30% of the profits so of the next She book. sits on like a chaise long uh, and Meryl Streep sits on the floor. On the floor. Like, um, sort of like leaning against the window, uh, not window, but the bed. Yeah. And the, the camera's kind of like between the two on, on the floor, kind of panning from right to left almost. As in like, mm-hmm. I think it's cutting between the two, but there's like a, I think it's the same camera. It's just like pan right, pan yeah. left and up. And that gets tight enough where it's head and shoulders shots by the end of it, right? Yeah, it's head and shoulders. Yeah. And I think that Meryl Streep is also, or maybe it's another camera because like the, I think Meryl, Meryl Streep is also shot kind of like neck upwards so you can barely see her head. Okay. Because this so. is, yeah, to me, this is sort of the most powerful scene in it. And I think it does get a little bit closer. But again, maybe too, like I'm fishing for what is the oomph that this film is missing and... I don't necessarily know, but I feel that in a way it's not getting as close as it uh, could maybe to the actors. And I might be wrong. If I, if I look at it again, I might see, oh no, like he gets close enough plenty of times, but there's, there's, there's still something here that as, as much as I like this film, uh, I feel like I'm not quite getting as close to these characters as I would have in sex lies and videotape. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know what this oomph is. Um, that it's missing. Like I know this movie's missing something, and I'm not sure whether this is like direction-wise or is this something um, that I suppose people would accuse Casavetti's of that it, do- it doesn't really get to the point. But at the same time, I like when people don't get to the point. So maybe when they, when these particular people don't get to the point, it's not as interesting to watch. Maybe. Just in general, as in like, this may not be something that this story is missing. It's just the story is just not as exciting as it could have been. Because A, either either it's not as extraordinary as it could have been if you were trying to do an extraordinary story. Or the or, like if it was an, like a Casavitesian sort of ordinary story. <laughs> nice. like ordinary people and ordinary in, in their ordinary lives. It's not dramatic enough, as in like it's just like well, or maybe this is just the fact that these are the kinds of people that I don't necessarily know. Because I I find it maybe more difficult say like if I, if I watch like an Antonioni film, like caring about rich people is way more difficult than caring about people who you maybe identify with because they're from a similar background to yours. So like I care about Mabel. Um, and I care about Nick, and I care about all these all these people. Um, maybe I don't like. I, I care about like guys and husbands because they're just like regular people. Meanwhile, um, I don't necessarily know if I if I'm supposed to care care about Alice, and even if I wanted to, she she's like separated from me, and I don't necessarily feel like I I either know enough about the other two or learn about them enough to care. They, because I think they're, they're, the two of them, Susan and Roberta, they're kind of tools to tell me something about Alice. And Alice is someone I don't necessarily want to know much about because she's just repulsive. And maybe, and maybe that's it. Maybe if they, uh, uh, maybe if Susan and Roberta were equals in this some, somehow, then I don't know. I don't know. Maybe. Not like if this was like husbands, right? Like there's always like, and I suppose like Ben Gazar and husbands, 
is mm-hmm. is a dick and I don't want to and and I, and I honestly despise him but there's but there's Cassavetes in it and there's um Peter Falk right and mm-hmm. and you can hang your hat onto them and just hang out with them a little bit more so and you still kind of get get a lot out of out of this relationship with them meanwhile in here we're asked to hang on to quote unquote Ben Gazzara <laughs> and Meanwhile, people who'd be more interesting, they're kind of second fiddle. Maybe. But this is me just, you know, it's, it's a bullshit like in. It, yeah. <laughs> um, Don't yeah. bullshit me. Maybe, maybe. Uh, anyway, like, and I don't really know myself what it may happen to be. And, uh, you know, my, my thought is like, maybe we're just not getting as close to the characters visually because I'm I'm comparing it to Sex, Lies, and Videotapes. And when I, because when I think of that, Sex, Lies, and Videotape, that shit gets really personal whenever the, he starts filming, uh, mm-hmm. whenever Spader starts filming Andy McDowell and it's intense and it's quiet and it's close and you feel like you're right there with them. And I don't have that sense here. Uh, so anyway, leave it out of mystery. I don't really have anything else on my radar unless you did. No, I don't have anything more now. Okay. All right. Let's bring this thing to a close. So we'll go into our final thoughts. Jakob, what did you think of this? Final thoughts. Uh, where do you stand now? Uh, I think pretty much where I was before because I think like oh, I, the conversation is better than the film. I think that's kind of one of those. Um Although the the film has a lot of merit, like thematically, it's a it, it's a it's a great mind. It's a it's a film critics film. Let's just say, right? Um, but at the same time, it kind of has a few sort of missing bits. I think like if it, it's kind of like a you know like it plays like a minor Woody Allen, like a Woody Allen film that you know like he did in his seventies when he's just like he churns out like two scripts a year and he's just one of them, right? Um. So I kind of treat it kind of like that. I appreciate what, what that he's kind of going back to his roots in a way, um, and he's instigating this sort of very thoughtful conversation about the mission of a of a of a writer, of a screenwriter, I suppose, um, of a creative in general, and then these sort of conflicting ideologies underpinning certain things that you do as a writer. Um, but at the same time, the film doesn't really carry itself off that easily. So I would say three and a half out of five. I think it's fair on my behalf. I'm gonna say. I think I'm gonna stick with a three and a half. Definitely is a movie that's worth checking out. However, so I'm not gonna go like, "I'm gonna jump." Let's do it. You know, like it's, it's kind of, it's a, hmm, it's a yeah for Soderbergh completists, yes, and um. Yeah, for 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 people who really really do and sort of like feel they're attuned with this kind of sort of intellectual filmmaking, Does that makes sense. Like, I'm not trying to sound snobby or pompous. It's just like if you're stupid, you don't watch it because you're not gonna like it. Okay, oh, what so an Alice. <laughs> <laughs> but you know that's that's kind of like this. You know, if you if you like fishing for for themes in films, that's kind of a 
Like you're gonna get something out of it. If you don't, then you're probably not gonna get much out of it, and and then there's nothing else to hang your your eye onto. That's kind of a problem with it, which is where people will be like, "This is boring," because if you're really not looking for it, there's nothing else to look at. So you know, it's cool. it's kind of what it is. Three and a half, I'm gonna say. Okay, uh, cool for me. Yeah, it's sort sort of the same. Like it's 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 missing that certain oomph, whatever it may be. Um, but I really like this. I really like this conversation. So thank you very much for it. I, for me, I, I can go as high as a four, but that's sort of where I was at the beginning of the day. I don't think that we hit upon anything that made it come to life anymore. It's sort of, it is what it is. I, I, I do like the idea of these ladies looking back on their lives and, uh, you know, there's, there's pieces that I love the discussion on, um, you know, the, the publishing industry is, is sort of a, you know, sort of a stand in for Soderbergh's thoughts on audience and making films for yourself and, you know, uh, mainstream. And I, I think that discussion is, is really interesting. Um, and I like watching this from sort of the, the, the playful through the playful lens that Soderbergh is, is like, Oh, this is so cool. We're on a, we're on the queen Mary two and we've got two weeks and this is a fun challenge. And, Oh, we can book the planetarium and we can book the, this room on the ship. So we're sort of getting a little bit of a, uh, tour of the Cunard, uh, cruise lines, uh, uh, big ship. So that, you know, that, that's fun and everything that goes with just imagining Soderbergh on set and someone pushing around in a wheelchair so he can get his dolly shots. This is fun to me. And, uh, you know, like just in examining Soderbergh's career, it's, it's interesting. This, this post, candelabra this post-retirement thing where he's you know trying to find what he wants to do now and he gravitates to aids towards some of these stories that seem to have to do with um you know maybe a stand-in for what he's learned out of the hollywood business that's sort of interesting uh to me as well but it's it's fun to see him sort of go back to what i want to say is like sex lies and videotape and that type mm-hmm. of filmmaking and, and you mentioned this earlier is like go back to 1989 if he's making that film wouldn't this be cool to do with Meryl Streep <laughs> well that's yeah. sort of what he's doing like yeah so it's yeah it's 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 fun in ways when you look at it especially through the lens that we've had the privilege of of this year and going through all the guys films and sort of looking at them you know very closely all the moves he's made in his career it's sort of fun to look at this project in that sense um not quite a top tier film, really solid, uh, you know, solid four films, you know, you can go fishing and get all kinds of value and think about it. I think it's a grower. I think it would improve on, uh, multiple viewings, but I still, I don't necessarily think it would ever necessarily get to a four and a half or a five unless I come across something I'm really missing, but good film. Really glad I watched it. I'm glad to see after the last couple of his films, like The Laundromat and High Flying Bird, that, you know, this is a solid hit and he's finding sort of a story that he really likes and and he's sort of resuming a, a, a passion and getting back onto the experimental side of things. So that's me. All right, let's go to our tops and bottoms. I'll okay, get you tops. to start with your top three. Go for it. I've got three. So, Teal versus Peacock Blue <laughs> conversation. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, maybe to you, I'm a designer, I'm color sensitive. Fuck off, lady. <laughs> yes. But the face that Candice Bergen, Bergen makes is just priceless. I agreed. <laughs> uh, yeah. They, they talk about Krantz's notes. Oh, plot. Oh, and she goes, like, Alice goes like, it's like made of styrofoam. 
made a styrofoam it's a puzzle and it's just like it connects and then again i think roberta goes like yes all true <laughs> can't yeah. wait for the next one <laughs> like br- brilliant and then yeah I, I do really enjoy the um the conversation i mean the two conversations are kind of slashed you know like the like when she's when, she, when she's being extorted for money really like it and also like when she speaks to crans it's like well tell me how you you know write your things <laughs> yes and he goes like well it just takes me this much time to and he, he, you can see that he, this guy is a professional writer as in like i write for money this is my job so i treat it like a job i outline for a month i write for three i edit for this much and then this this month this many months in a year takes me to um write a book and i then put it out and i and i sell it and i write another one and then just i spend this many months i like ideating or do whatever and then she goes like i don't understand this this man one bit like it's like he's speaking chinese you know because she just has this sort of like i just have to be in the mood to write <laughs> and i'm just like yeah this conversation this sort of clash yeah. of ideologies there's a good like line this. in there too where he explains oh a month to a month to outline and then i write for three and then edit it so four four and a half months and she looks at, oh, that long. I'm surprised it's like, that long. It's like, oh, just because, you, because your art is so pedestrian and mundane and probably would just, and she assumes that this is something you accomplish on the toilet. On a, yeah, over a weekend or something. She's or, just got yeah, such on a, a lazy Sunday. Yeah. Like, oh, I could turn this out. And, and she's probably, in, and by the way, that also lets you know that she's probably incapable of writing anything like that as well. Yeah. But yeah. It's a it's an interesting conversation of the sort of like these sort of missions of of writing as in like well it, like here's an entertainer who treats this as a profession like this is like a Spielberg a very successful professional storyteller who just churns them out and and meanwhile she's kind of like Todd Field who goes like I'm gonna go into hiding for two decades uh, or just like or like Terrence Malick. Terrence Malick yes oh it's, I suppose reverse turns Malick because now he goes like I got into the swing of this like you know I might as well just start doing like three <laughs> yeah, that's true. Malick has finally figured it out because like he, uh, Malick is kind of like um, I don't know he like, takes 20 years to make another film and then takes 10 then 5 then 2 and a half then 1.25 and all of a sudden like he's just doing one a week <laughs> it's like a decomposition curve yeah <laughs> Uh, so, yeah, nice. that's kind of my tops okay um <clears throat> so for me i really like the scene because i thought it funny uh roberta trying to cash in her complimentary pedicure for cash and when they say no just well can you put it on my credit card what about that i just thought that was hilarious and i'll just extend that to candace bergen and pretty much everything i think she's great in this and she asks if men get massages there <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> But is there a man getting a massage now? Yep. And I'll get a sport sport massage massage. too. (laughs) And she's like, no one tells her. It's just like, she's probably going to get a different room. Yeah. (laughs) It's not like you're just like going to this big hall of being, of of like naked oiled people being massaged. So you go like, hello. It's like sweet charity again. I just want a job to meet new people (laughs) and find a man. (laughs) Uh, That's uh, the best anyway um i really like number two 
Gemma Chan's emotional scene, uh, we mentioned it earlier. I think it's, she's just really, really good in this. And I think it sort of taps into something that hasn't really been well articulated in any drama that I can think of. Maybe they're out there. But anyway, I just thought it was really well done. Uh, a nice piece of uh, acting. And so emotional open my, content. Very much so. <laughs> open my eyes to Gemma Chan. I, as she's someone I know who's been around, but I don't know if I can think of anything else. But she's I think in she's the creator. Oh, okay. I didn't see it. Um, so yeah, like so that she strikes me as a as a as a real talent. So anyway, that was fantastic. And number one, I'm going to say Diane Weist's eye popping language and personal admissions. <laughs> <laughs> like just the Salty. best, sweet, demure, kind, grounded Diane Weist. She's talking with her son. I think they're even walking through the grocery store at this point. And he's telling her about someone. I don't know if it's a client or someone in his life who's done something foul. And Diane Weist, don't let that motherfucker near me. (laughs) Out of of nowhere. It's the best. And playing Scrabble with uh, Roberta, you know, she puts a great word down. Bow down to me, bitch. Diane Weiss is so fantastic in here. Then this weird admission of a seven-year-old that, that looks like a professor we used to have. Remember him? Remember him? Yeah, I don't know. I don't really think it looks like him. Oh, I'd know him. I I had a three-way with him and his wife. (laughs) Thought she was just great in this. (laughs) Okay. Mm -hmm. Now let's move on to our bottoms. All right. Okay. One, I've got, like my note says, Monopoly is not a game for two. It never ends well because it's a zero-sum game. Yeah. It should not be played by two people. Like, first of all, it's going to take forever. And second of all, like once once you tip the scale, nine times out of ten, you're won, you've won already, but it will take like three hours for this thing to resolve itself. That's so 100% it's not true. For, not fun for anyone. And they're sitting there playing Monopoly, just the two of them, and having fun. No one has ever had fun playing Monopoly <laughs> with just one extra person. You're right. <laughs> You're <laughs> very right. <laughs> saying, uh, I've got Diane Weist has no idea how to tell satellites from stars. <laughs> I suppose. Like, Elon Musk has just fired a bunch of satellites into space and there are these little starlings and you know i mean i get this of the philosophically the concept of like the sky is never the same like it's not the same sky as it was like in the 19th century but she was like you will never know which bits are stars which are satellites i'm like bitch like the ones that move real quick probably not stars in a a line that's probably the starling train information but it goes for any satellites like the as well as the geostationary satellites that are really far away you can barely see them then they're, they're they're the ones who just sit there but usually they travel very fast because where what they are they're not really in orbit they're in perpetual control they're in perpetual freefall so <laughs> so it's so they're especially that the satellites that we use for internet they have to be quite close to where we are so that, you know, like the internet makes sense. So they have to be really fast. Damn. But then again, excused. Um, 
And the, la- and the last one was it, it's a it's a slash between Lucas Hedges wearing a baseball cap indoors like a farmer. <laughs> <laughs> Look, uh, even Leonardo DiCaprio in the Killers of the Flower Moon knew that you have to take your you have to doff your cap. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> when you cross the threshold of a house, a gentleman takes off their headgear. That's what I'm saying. Okay. Uh, and then that's kind of slashed with his final with, with how he takes the grief as in like, oh, oh. <laughs> Again, he's no Leonardo DiCaprio in, like, what's eating Gilbert Grape. Mom! <laughs> Mom, wake up! Mom! Mom! And he goes like... You know, just like... And he goes like... Fucking something's wrong. And he just starts panicking. And then nowhere near the genius of that role. And he, yeah... Lucas had just sort of, sort of fake grief of like, oh no, Aunt Alice is dead. Whatever am I going to do with my inheritance? <laughs> Forsooth. <laughs> oh, Christ. No, okay. that's, that's me. Yeah. Okay. Uh, for my bottoms, number three, Lucas Hedge's hair. <laughs> so, in a way... I, I could have stood you him ha- having the... the cup. Yeah, I could have stood him having the hat on longer uh in a way because it's god like brush it brush it you know <laughs> that's brush I mean, maybe, maybe he's on his way to kind of grow a respectable pony, ponytail but at the same time when you're growing trying to grow a respectable pony, ponytail it's probably best for the country to go into lockdown for like three to six months <laughs> so you don't have to see anyone uh yeah so if he didn't cut his hair after this then he would have had a nice ponytail in a year's time before he comes out of wherever he was staying in quarantine anyway he, he doesn't look like someone who could rock a good ponytail because i don't think he looks like someone who could rock a good facial hair as well it's just like with his sort of like the way he looks like a ponytail he he would look like i don't know he'd look like a beatnik poet from the <laughs> 60s <laughs> yes <laughs> is how he'd look uh, okay Number two, whenever Roberta and Susan are playing Scrabble, so good call on the Monopoly, but I'm gonna I'm gonna Go rip the one on Scrabble. Is it is is the triple word incorrect? No, it's not that it was incorrect, but uh, right before that, Roberta plays the word control. So great, that's a theme of the movie. I get it. When she plays the word control, it connects to parts of the board that weren't previously connected. And I don't know if that's a variation of how you can play Scrabble, but I play Scrabble, you all the words branch out from what already exists. You can't have, oh, I'll just start a new word over here. You have oh, to, no, no, you can't do that. That's You have to be connected, rules. right? So like, yeah. I don't know of any variation where that's okay. So it's certainly kinda, not house Alice rules. It's kind of stupid because so, she didn't notice. Maybe this is how they play Scrabble. They just put words on the on because it's a very hippie sort of like we don't need structure, Maybe. you know. Yeah, because the word control connects two separate, disconnected parts of the board. That sort of bothered me. <laughs> so there's that. And number one is my uh, 
my God, Lucas Hedge is in the bar at the beginning talking to his friends. I have to go on this trip. I have to take care of these older women, you know? And just this feels like something that is not really written out fully and clearly. Mm -hmm. It's like, this is the gist. This is one of those paragraphs that uh, uh, Eisenberg wrote that says, okay, this is what happens in this scene. This is what happens in this dialogue. So just let the actors do it. But this is Lucas Hedges not really convincing and he's just sort of this rambling. not and, imagining that Lucas random. Hedges would, would crumble under the <laughs> pressure of delivering a casual conversation with his peers. <laughs> yes, exactly. So I think maybe he is someone who may need to be directed. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, I think maybe that's a thing. Anyway, all right, we're done. We have uh, finished talking about Let Them All Talk. And to my knowledge, it is streaming on Max in the US. It's streaming on Crave in Canada, but not many other places. No, it streams on the dark web everywhere. (laughs) (laughs) That's Yeah, that's sort of what I could gather from this. So if you want to check it out and, you know, if this could possibly be your cup of tea, I encourage you to find it. It's 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 worth it. But um, it's not everywhere. But in Canada, you can find it. In the U.S., you can find it. But uh, I don't even think it has a physical release, right? Don't think so, because it was just straight up uh, HBO Max. So I don't think you can find a Blu-ray. Yeah. What, like a Carnes or whatever? Whenever we we talked about maybe like Space Raid or something like physical media saves shitty movies and sometimes it saves good movies too because... Yeah, true. But this, like, I don't know, like if you don't have access to HBO Max and someone decides to actually pawn the license off to someone else and no one picks it up, films just disappear. Yeah. Yeah, very true. Very true. Uh, all right. Jakob, where can our listeners find you and your stuff? Oh, they can find me on Letterboxd as Jakob Flash, flashonfilm.com, and occasionally on Twitter as Talk About Film. Cool. You can find me on X slash Twitter at Randy Burroughs. You can find me on Letterboxd at Bratch7. You can find me on my Facebook group, Island Film Geeks. You can check us out and all of our stuff out and find out more about us and all of our episodes at www.uncutgemspodcast.com um, check out our other Soderbergh deep cuts on the main show all throughout this year 2023 we've talked about all of his smaller lesser known films here at the first Friday of each month so we've got one more coming so on Patreon go check out Oliver. I'm going to come. <laughs> go check out Oliver Soderbergh's shallow cuts uh there including this month's No Sudden Move which will uh come out a week from a couple days ago. So it's coming out this next Wednesday at the point of the release of this episode. Uh so next week come on back meet us here because we are getting festive baby we are jumping into our december films and our theme which will bring us the joy of holiday horrors so come back next week for uh silent night deadly night i think that's first up welcome to the pain zone punish and have a great week (laughs) 